one. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Unidentified Flying Podcast. And the following episode is recorded at the Friendly Market in Norman, Oklahoma. And I had a little sit-down with Norman City Council member Stephen Tyler Holman. And it's a long one because he goes through the entire Friendly Market saga. I mean, everything leading up to it, any thoughts feelings in between, uh, anything that the happened during the trial. Uh, and Stephen also gets into talking about uh, what kind of got him started to be civically minded and politically active and kind of led him to where he is today. Also, there's a little bit of talk about Oklahoma medical marijuana laws and kind of stuff looking forward and, and some laws that have just taken effect. Uh, so if you don't want to miss literally any detail, this is the show for you because Stephen is the star in this one. He is mainly 90% of the episode. So thank you again to him for coming on. I'd love to have him back. So without further ado, this is Stephen Tyler Holman. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I want to kind of talk about like, I know I want to get you into like talking about this case because we've talked about it on the podcast before. Sure. Um, but I also kind of, just from my perspective as well, just like a normal, normal person that wasn't really, like I wasn't looking for this case, you know, when it first popped up, you know, the first time I saw it was, I saw something, I think in Oklahoma or somewhere around here in Oklahoma, where it was talking about Norman City Council dealt with drug charges. Yes. And that's the headline. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, yeah. Your initial reaction, if you don't know anything about it, whether you care about it or not, is like, I don't know. Yeah. Drug, drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> is yeah. that what you felt like when, when that happened? I mean, I, I mean, kind of, I guess, kind of start like you wanted to obviously get into a, a business, right? And start running it. And if you, I heard, I, all, I, all I knew about was like you did your due diligence before that, as far as the law was concerned. Correct. So I guess um, start from there. Yes, so I uh, didn't really plan to get into this business ahead of like growing up or in the last sure. you know uh, ten years or anything. Um, it was just actually the culmination of several events over a span of about six months. But basically, the friendly market was opened on October fourth, two thousand fourteen, here in Norman on the. East Constitution Street, close to the university campus, um, and it was opened by a man named Robert Cox, a local guy, local businessman. Um, his daughter and I went to high school together. She was one grade below me, but I, Norman High 2004 for me, she was 2005, so sort of knew each other. And um, anyway, I, uh, I've been on the city council in Norman since 2013. Um, I was elected when I was 28 years old. I'm a fourth generation Norman resident. Were you um, the youngest? I'm not the I'm not the youngest ever that's been elected. I guess around that time and kind of yeah. When I got elected, I was the youngest on the council for a couple of years, uh, up until about two years. Until two years ago, I was the youngest person on the council currently, um, and now we have several younger members. But um, historically, I would have been the second tied for second youngest ever that we know of as far as city council goes. So anyway, I'm uh, from Norman, grew up here, went to elementary, middle school, high school here. My dad grew up here and did the same thing. Uh, my grandfather 
worked at Central State or Griffin, what is known as Griffin Hospital here in Norman for 42 years. My great-grandfather owned a small store on Main Street in downtown Norman for 50 years before I was born. Um, he was a shoe and saddle uh, maker. Some of his saddles are actually in the Oklahoma uh, uh, Cowboy Hall of Fame, I guess. And um, So my family history goes way back in Norman and um, uh, got elected in 2013 to the city council. Um, and in 2015... Um, about the spring of 2015, um, April or so, I got a phone call from a, a man named Robert Cox, uh, who told me that uh, he had, owns a small business located within the district that I represent, uh, Ward 7 is what it's called, and uh, he said his store is called The Friendly Markets, and um, he had very thoroughly researched and spoken with legal counsel and done everything you're supposed to do before he opened the business. But, um, and like I said, he had opened in October 2014. This is around April, May of 2015. And uh, he says, but I've, I've got a visit from the Norman Police Department, and I've noticed that they've just raided a store that sells pipes, glass pipes and things like that, that on, that's on Main Street. And, uh, you know, I'm really concerned about why they are doing that um, because like I said I thoroughly researched this subject before I opened this store and I am and if the Norman police are saying that these pipes are just illegal to exist and they're illegal to sell I really believe they're mistaken about that so that was that was is that what he found before the that raid even happened as far when as he like, when he opened the store he did research he talked actually spoke with the the former district attorney for Cleveland County. Mm. Uh, his name is Tim Kirkendall. Uh, Tim's daughter and Robert's daughter both were in the same grade and went to high school together and knew each other really well. So that was one of the first people Robert went to for advice when he thought about opening this type of business. And basically, Robert's motivation was, you know, he had been inside of places that would be described as head shops uh, throughout the years, and he wanted to open a store that was... Um, kind of try to change the image of that and from a negative view like head shop is viewed as pretty generally negatively yeah. throughout the community you know people think of a head shop as, especially the more back in time you go. yes absolutely yeah. think of it as not being very clean and you know um, in some instances illegal activity taking place things like that and Robert wanted to create a business a store that was more, it was clean and professional and friendly and tried to change the image of that whole thing and that people would feel more comfortable coming into and um, talking uh, about right the people. like loves Bob Marley but don't have we don't have Bob Marley posters all over the walls yeah. we love tie-dye but we it's have some everywhere. tie-dye shirts yeah. there's not yeah. just like tie-dye everywhere <laughs> not throwing in your face yeah and um, you know so Anyway, just like I said, a clean, friendly, professional, more like a boutique type of store. And he just wanted to promote health and wellness. Robert is what I would describe as ultra-vegan, vegetarian, um, since the 70s. Uh, no meat, no dairy. and he, This is not a fad for him. Exactly. It's not a fad for him. It's real. And he wanted to promote, help promote that better to the community. 
and he is in his 60s. He's owned his own business for 25 years, another small business in Norman that's completely unrelated to pipes and anything like that. It's a professional service business. So um, he basically said, I've saved this much and my I have this much in savings. I want to start this. And so that's what he did. And um, so, like I said, he did a lot of research. He spoke mm. with people he believed were, you know, knew what they were talking about. Former district attorney, Tim Kirkendall, had been the district attorney for 15 years up until 2006. Um, and he did not get reelected, uh, unfortunately, that year. So, so was that kind of the maybe the understanding that like you you wouldn't expect this to happen? Right. Well, to a certain extent, because because there was a history from about 2006 to that point in 2015, Mm -hmm. 14, when Roberts thought about opening this business, where a string of stores that had opened in Norman did get shut down by the police department. That's that's and relatively quickly after they would open. That's kind of what got me. I, I think most interested about this. Yes, is because. I used to live uh, right there off campus corner, under bar, which has been renamed. Yes, Dean's Row. Um, there was Dazed and Confused right next door to the deli. Yes, way back then. Yeah, and I, it, you know, it closed down. I think it got ready. I, I think you know this is, this is, but this is how the games played. It's yes. always hearsay. Yeah. Oh, I heard they got raided. Sure. Wherever that place was. Absolutely. I also heard they were dealing drugs out of there. Absolutely. You don't yeah. know. Nobody actually knows. And then that's what word of mouth. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, you know, um, not uncommon. And in many instances, some of those things are true. Mm -hmm. Illegal things were happening at some point. Sure, sure. Uh, Not any specific in Norman that I know of. But anyway, it uh, basically, Tim Kirkendall had been the district attorney from the early 90s up until about 2006. Yeah, six or seven is when he lost re-election to the current district attorney, Greg Mashburn, Mm -hmm. who is a prominent player in this whole thing. Sure. So anyway, Tim Kirkendall, um, I guess I would describe him as maybe a moderate Democrat, if you were from unpolitical terms. Okay. And so he didn't prosecute everything that the police would bring forward. And so, you know, he used his discretion. He looked at the case, the circumstances, and then would decide if it merited that. And so, you know, I guess all district attorneys have their interpretation and how they decide to prosecute things, and so do the police. But uh, from what I understand, talking to people, you know, 2006 is before I got very politically active at all. Um, but from what I understand, Greg Mashburn ran on a campaign of you know, Tim Kirkendall's not tough on crime. I will be, you know, I'm a strong like conservative Christian man. I'm back in law enforcement, and from what I understand, that part of the deal was I will I will be more willing to prosecute. to prosecute the cases you bring forward than Tim Kirkendall. So if the law enforcement community supports me, support you know, me even more. Support me, and we will get we will clean up this town. We'll clean up this county, and you know he's sent here by higher forces to clean up. You know, Earth, okay, <laughs> uh, is the way I would describe Greg Mashburn. And so anyway, um, around that time, yeah, anytime a store would open or ones that were open at the time just started being closed under, you know, sometimes mysterious circumstances or like people would say, what happened there? I was actually more surprised when I heard a place open. Yeah. I was like, yeah, wow, exactly, exactly. there is one? You know? And it doesn't make much sense because Norman is the third largest city in the state of Oklahoma. Um, we are... 
widely considered to be the most liberal or progressive politically mm -hmm. uh, community in the state of Oklahoma. It's right next to Oklahoma City. Yes, we're which, right next which, to Oklahoma City. We're in the metropolitan area. You could go up there and, and buy the exact same thing. That's yeah. what blew my mind. Yeah. I never could and really. Our, like, what's the yeah. difference? Yeah. And our city council, there's nine of us, um, including the mayor. And it, this isn't the case at the time, but right now, for example, there's nine of us and there are zero Republicans on the council. Okay. I mean, Norman is a pretty... Sure, I would say liberal or progressive, comparative to the rest of Oklahoma. Yeah, community with a large university, a very educated overall population, um, and so why, you know, uh, alternative or pipe store or head shops or whatever were being run out of this town did not make sense to anybody. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people, just like it caught your attention. Yeah. A lot of people thought, well, why, why? There's pipe stores all over the state. They're yeah. all over OKC and Tulsa, mm -hmm. and they're all over small towns across Oklahoma, which is something I found out when researching mm -hmm. the subject uh, once, uh, you know, we were facing these charges and we started researching, you know, okay, so what's, what is the law in Oklahoma and we found out that we did an inventory, basically. We tried to find every pipe store, every store in the whole state that sold glass pipes and what towns they were in. And you would be amazed at the small, what you would think of as very conservative, uh, yeah. you know, Bibles, church, towns. You would think there's no way there'd be a pipe store in that town. Uh, there was one, for example, and I don't know the exact political persuasion of the town of Okmulgee, you know, uh -huh. south, uh, east of Tulsa a little bit. Uh, but um, right off the highway there in Okmulgee, there is a drive through pipe store that's in an old Long John Silver store. And two blocks over is the Okmulgee Police Station. So there's no way the police there don't know about it. Yeah. Um, it's drive through. Yeah. <laughs> you can that's buy a pipe drive through. Very convenient. <laughs> so, um, and that will be relevant in a moment when I get to what the police in Norman's view about it was. And so basically, these stores exist all over the state of Oklahoma, but not in Norman. Not the third largest and most liberal city in the state. Yeah. Why is that? Not just a little bit, like, at all. At all. Yeah, none. And, uh, uh, you know, lots of old hippies live in Norman. And, again, a sure. lot of educated yeah. uh, professors. And just any, any you know. Mm -hmm. We have a, our average age in Norman, uh, based on the last census, I think it was 29 or 30. You know, so it's a young, progressive community. And so um, it didn't make sense. So that the why, why that is also relevant is why Robert Cox contacted me was he said I have a store located in your district. I did a lot of research about this. I'm confident the Norman police are wrong, or is there maybe some sort of obscure, you know, old city of Norman ordinance that says pipe stores or whatnot can't be here, or that pipes are paraphernalia, you know, and maybe it wasn't being enforced under the under a previous DA yeah. and maybe the police just now are enforcing it. You know, that could be the case. Cause there, you know, every city has some weird. Old That's kind of what I thought. I was like, maybe there is. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe there's some weird state law. Well, and, and on in a similar fashion or, you know, in the eighties, there used to, in the seventies and eighties, uh, from what I understand, there were a lot more, uh, there were a number of adult entertainment clubs in Norman. Okay. And in the 80s, there was local legislation put in place that, uh, from a zoning standpoint, made it pretty much illegal to have one. So that's why there is only one that still exists. People will think of, uh, or might know of Sugars, Sugars yeah. on Campus Corner. So, you know, that's the only one that is in Norman. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So some thought maybe, well, maybe there's a similar ordinance that says, you know, about pipes. And none of them were grandfathered in. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know. So um, Robert asked me from a city council standpoint if I could look into, you know, if I could have our city legal staff look into that and, you know, give a definitive answer. And if, um, if I could help maybe arrange a meeting with him and the chief of police and other city representatives, you know, to really get to the bottom of what the case was here. So, um, and, uh, so I did that. I met with the city legal staff. Um, they uh, gave me a, uh, they did some research, got back to me and showed that there's not any city of Norman ordinance that says, stores can't sell pipes or that pipes are drug paraphernalia, that they're illegal just by existing. Yeah. You know, our city ordinance said drug paraphernalia is this if these circumstances, just like the state law says, you know, is there illegal substances in the pipe? Is there a bag of illegal substances next to the pipe? Sure. Um, is the store promoting, and this was a real important piece of the law, is the store promoting the use of it? Is there intent that these pipes be used illegally. And so in the absence of actual illegal substances, the argument is the store is promoting the illegal use. Their intent is really, you know, they can call it a water pipe, they can call it whatever they want to call it. Right. But their real intent is for these pipes to be used for marijuana. And we know that because there's no other use for these pipes. In our training and experience, and the lead detective in the case, uh, Detective Rick Newell, uh, at the time a 28-year, I believe, or 28-year veteran of the Norman Police Department, mm-hmm. he had been a uh, detective for 20 of those years, you know, undercover narcotics, all that stuff, like the whole deal. And so the whole theme was in our training and experience, in our training and experience, in my 28 years of training and experience, I've only ever seen those pipes, those type of pipes used for the consumption of marijuana, which is illegal. So we're supposed to see it just from from their eyes. So their standpoint was glass pipes are absolutely illegal no matter what to exist because we know what they're going to be used for. There's no other purpose. Okay. And so basically... Your intent could not be anything else. You're yes. selling them, whatever you're selling them for, there's nothing you could be selling them for other than for it to be used yeah. for legal. So that's the case that they made. That's the interpretation of the law that the police department in Norman took. And that is the interpretation that the district attorney in Cleveland County was willing to back up and pursue as well. And so um, that was different than uh, we found out as this went on, we found out you know, that was different than police departments and DAs were interpreting it across the rest of the state. And that's why there were pipe stores everywhere else was. And just like the previous district attorney, Tim Kirkendall, his view was if the store had illegal substances, if they were selling synthetic marijuana, if they were clearly promoting the use of these pipes for the, for the consumption of marijuana, if they had a big pot leaf poster on the wall behind their showcase, that's they, not going to help. If yeah. they had High Times magazines yeah. on the rack, those would be the term that was said over and over again in the trials, the totality of the circumstances. If the totality of the circumstances points to the fact, to this store promoting that use, so if you've got High Times magazines, you've got a pot leaf poster over there, you've got Bob Marley's picture on that t-shirt smoking a joint, Yeah. then 
We know where this is at. Those things all together mean that. And so that's how you could be in violation of the law, even if there aren't actual illegal substances. And that's why the language part of, you know, before medical marijuana and all this that we have now, but before why you couldn't say bong, why you had to be careful about the way you describe Same things, is because bong would mean it would make it reasonably reasonable to assume that your intent was to use that pipe for marijuana. So if you as a customer come to the store and say, I'm looking for a bong, then you've just made me made it to where I should I should by the law's eyes reasonably assume based on that description that you're going to use it for marijuana. And that's the that is what the police would do when they would come in undercover and make buys is they would try to get employees of a store to say marijuana or talk about marijuana or the undercover officer would use a term like bong or joint or whatever and if that employee did not correct them. correct them, then they got them. And that's how a lot of those stores actually did get shut down. Was, did they do that to you? They did. They did do that. They, uh, unfortunately for them, they actually did not get us uh, on... Uh, they got us on audio several times. They came in and bought things undercover. Thankfully, we did not um, make any mistakes when it came to correction or allowing words to be said, things like that. They weren't able to get us. Uh, we had to listen to all the audio recordings. I think um, they came in, I think, four different times, four different undercover officers over a span of uh, about a month or so um, had come in. And so um, that's what they would do, though. And like I said, over a span of time, sometimes over a span of months, they would go into a store, even become regular customers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, build up a friendship with the clerk and, you know, once up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's how they would get them. And, and in some cases, again, um, there was illegal activity, as in there was illegal substances being sold out the sure. door, things like that. Or the stores had the High Times magazine with the posters and pot leaves all over everything. Um, and, you know, clearly breaking the intent part, I would say. So, um, But anyway, the Norman police say none of that matters. None of intent, none of it matters. It's just illegal to exist. So um, none of these circumstances need to apply. The state law on what paraphernalia is is actually 12 steps. And it includes, is there substances in the pipe? Is there substances in proximity to it? The intent of, is there posters, all that stuff. All that combined is used to determine whether it's paraphernalia or not. So the idea that it's just illegal no matter what, that kind of flies in the face of, well, the state law says there's these things you have yeah. to apply to at first. If it was just illegal, no matter what, the state law would say, all glass pipes are illegal in the state of Oklahoma. Period. There's nothing to apply to it. Yeah. It is. Yeah. We just don't want If you see it, it's illegal. Yeah. So, um, and that, you know, came about in the trials. That played out um, in the courtroom as being true. But uh, um, Robert uh, Cox, the owner, basically, he stopped. I, got, I was able to arrange meetings with him, with the chief of police. Um, and I, like I said, there was no city of Norman ordinance that said we couldn't do it. Um, I went to this meeting with him, with the chief of police, a couple detectives that were in the narcotics division, a city attorney. And it was Robert and his daughter um, and, uh, and myself. And we went around the table for about an hour and a half or so. And it was pretty much a stalemate. The police department said, this is what we believe. We believe that it's illegal. 
Now, is this after they rated you? The no, first it's time? not. This is, no. this is before. Yeah, this okay. is in May of 2015. Okay. This is before I worked here mm-hmm. and anything like that. This is this is right after the store had been open since October. So this is May. Mm-hmm. The de- a detective had had um, basically what had happened was the police raided a popular pipe store on Main Street, mm-hmm. right here in downtown Norman. And the significance of that was this place was a glass blowing. Like gallery, yeah. They I made, actually went in a while. Yeah, the art walk is called the clouds. Yeah. They made some really high end pieces. Like some of them were a couple thousand dollars. And during art walk, second Friday art walk, it was a huge popular place. Like people went in there. Yeah. Kids loved seeing it. It was a, they did it right in front of you. It was amazing. It was great having a place like that mm-hmm. on Main Street too. And um, so one day though, the police raided that store. Um, Detective Newell raided the store. They took all of his stuff. Um, unfortunately, from for him, from what I understand, they did search his car that was parked in the back of the place, which is arguably, he yeah. argued, a, an illegal yeah. search because it wasn't inside. The warrant was for inside. Sure. Yeah. So I believe in his defense, inside. he argued that they searched my car illegal, but he did have a pipe in his car that had residue sure. in it. So they got him for that. And so it made his case a little bit different than what our case ended sure. up being because there was no illegal substances. But anyway... Uh, Robert heard about this happening. So Robert, like I said, Robert has been a business owner for 25 years. He's in his 60s. He's got grandkids. He's a professional businessman. As soon as he hears about this, he calls the police department. Robert calls the police department says, I need to speak to this detective, Rick Newell. I, need, I, have an, I own a business uh, here in Norman, and I need to speak to him about this uh, pipe store issue. So if he can please call me back this number, so on. So Robert reaches out. To say, hey, I sell these items. What's going on? Yeah. So Detective Newell calls him back. Detective Newell apparently, we find out later, does go into the store undercover and buy some stuff uh, before Robert had made contact. So Detective Newell did already know about Friendly Market. But he, he agrees to meet with Robert for coffee. They meet. Detective Newell says, you know, as far as I'm concerned, these are all, it's all legal. And you cannot keep selling them. And you know, they go back and forth, and he says, "No, it's it's illegal. You've got to stop. And I'll let you take them off the shelves. You know, so if you take them off the shelves, and you know, that's it. You don't have to close your business. You just can't sell all that stuff anymore. And if you do that, you won't hear from me, basically. And um, so you know, Robert, you know, went back for he's like, well, can we have like a fire sale and just get rid of all of it? He said, no. Just get you have to take it off the shelves. You could put it in storage. You could." Do whatever, but no, you can't sell any of it. Sure. You just have to get rid of it. And so, I mean, Robert is just like, the business, that's the number one selling item in the business. It's a new business in its first six months. So, telling me I got to take away my best selling thing when I'm just a brand new business. It's about to be summertime in Norman. Yeah. School's out. Yeah. You know, at OU. And things slow down. Yeah, things slow down. So, um, you know, that's. that's what Robert got out of that meeting. That's when he called me and got me involved, and that's when I arranged the meeting with the chief of police and got the clarification from legal staff about no city law says you can't do that. And so, um, like I said, in that meeting, the police stalemate. They just said, no, we're not budging. I mean, we're the police, and this is what we believe. The law is. That's what it is. The police. We're the police, and the law is what we say it is. Yeah. That's basically it. So what are you going to do? And as a city council member, I only have so much power. I don't have the authority to order the police to do anything. 
Um, the city of Norman. You're not their head supervisor. No, right? the city of Norman yeah. is a is what is called a council manager form of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an elected eight member city council and an elected mayor who is the ninth or first member of the city council, however you want to look at it. And the mayor is just the chair of our meetings and has to be elected by the whole city. But we actually have a what is called a city manager that actually runs the city mm-hmm. and is who is the chief executive. He's in charge of all the employee matters, all the departments, all the policy in regard to that. The city council, we're the legislative body, and the city manager's job is you know, to implement the policy that we pass and things like that. But he is in charge of all interdepartmental policy sure. and things like that. So the police don't answer to me directly. You know, I do their budget. I approve their budget every year. And so I'm involved in that sense, but I can't just march down to the police department and say, well, you know, you guys are wrong about that, and you're just going to look the other way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe in some places yeah, in yeah. old times. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but not in Norman, and uh, so I don't have the authority to really push it any further than what we can go at that point. I've arranged meetings, i got clarification, but outside of Robert hiring attorneys and, you know, taking legal action, there's nothing really else I could do at that point. I mean, maybe long term, I could work on policy that de- defines city law as not paraphernalia provides. Yeah. But that would be a several months to even possibly a year. And medical marijuana wasn't even on the horizon at that point. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure the council as a whole at that time would have cared to even take on that issue. So anyway, um, you know, I told them that I don't think, I, you know, I'm, I'm Wish I could do more. I'm sorry. Um, is what so, it is. Yeah. A few months went by that summer. Uh, didn't really hear much. He called me later in like July. And, and, you know, just checking up, seeing if I'd heard anything. I hadn't. He said, yeah, it was getting pretty bad. They'd had, you know, like one customer days, you know, because they had tapestries and clothing and some furniture and stuff like that. But, you know, not stuff people generally buy every day. Yeah. And in bulk or whatever. And so he uh, he uh, said, you know, we even had one day where it was a negative. Somebody had a return. We had no buying customers that day. So it's like it's getting really bad, you know, desperate. So, you know, I said, I'll just I'll keep my eyes out for anything I see and I'll let you know. Um, uh, and uh, so I am pretty active on social media. I have been for a long time. It's a big part of how I got elected to city council was being very well known on Facebook. And I think that's probably how I yeah saw you, saw you just yeah. running, yeah. getting elected, I think. When I, when I got elected, it was against an incumbent and opponent who was much older than I was. And she mm-hmm. had lots of money, but she was not at all active on social media. And her amount of money could not buy... The fact that people knew what I had been talking about for years, and there were people that reached out to me that didn't even know me. They said, ah, you know, Stephen, I, I really am glad you're running. I really support you. I don't know you in person. We've never met, but I've followed the things you post about for years, and I have no doubt that I can trust you up there, and based on the issues and things you talk about, I think you would be great there. So I didn't have to spend money and go door to door and talk to a lot of those folks. And even though a lot of them didn't live in my district, might have friends and family do, or the fact they just share my thing, or yeah. or just overall support. You know, mm-hmm. the first time I ran, I actually lost uh, in a runoff by 21 votes. In 2011, I was 26 years old. 
and uh, ran two years later and, and won by 28 votes over the incumbent who had defeated me two years prior. Because it's not a, a high total. No, no. Local elections are always low uh, turnout. Yeah. And even though we're the third largest city in Oklahoma, with about 125,000 people, um, each district has about 15,000 or so, give or take. Um, um, city council elections can also often be decided by very few votes. Less than 1,000 total votes is not uncommon in most city council districts. And in my case, when I first got elected in 2013, when I had run the second time, I won 220 votes to 192 over my opponent. So, Just a barn burner. Yeah. In <laughs> my district, uh, you know, I would admit my district, Ward 7, is the lowest voting turnout district in Norman. Sure. It's where most of the university campus is located. Yeah. I have a lot, of, a lot of folks who are registered to vote, but um, a lot of students don't know that they can vote in local elections. And, you know, I've, I've made some headway in changing that over the years. I've steadily seen the vote total. I've, I've been reelected four times, or I've been elected four times now, most recently in February. And um, uh, over the times I've had to run, I've seen that vote total go up every time, which was one of my goals. But overall, most students on campus, you know, a lot of them will register to vote here in Norman at the dorms or a fraternity or sorority house or whatnot or an apartment complex. But overwhelmingly, they don't know about city council or elections or anything like that. You know, so a lot of them are surprised when I go speak to student groups and they're like, oh, I had no idea. Or they're just like, oh, you know, I'm not from here and, you know, I didn't know I could vote and those type of stuff. And I say, well, if you're going to live in Norman for four years or five or six or whatever, then you should definitely vote here because we're making policy that impacts you now and also the future students that are going to be here. So the things that you think right now that uh, should be different or that we should do better, um, you can help us make policy that uh, so students in the future you know, uh, yeah. you know, won't have to. And so anyway, um, low turnout, all that stuff. And social media was a big way for me to, to get where I got on that. And, um, and so I was uh, reading the newsfeed one day and, uh, it was about early August, 2015. And it maybe two weeks since I talked to Robert on the phone about, you know, when he told me about sales being way down and, and I saw this story on um, on the news feed about a federal judge in Oklahoma City in regard to the chain of stores called Ziggy's. Uh, we have one in Norman now, but they're really well known in Oklahoma City. Sure. I think the first one opened in 1981 up on uh, 36th and Penn. And... Um, Anyway, Ziggy's was really well known, not only for being around a long time, but because the previous owner had gotten in some very serious trouble, legally, uh, criminally. I think he's in prison, maybe even still. I'm not sure about that, but the last I had, I had heard about it. But anyway, they had raided warehouses, several stores, his personal home, all this type of stuff. I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of inventory and product. Um, so it was a really big deal. Not a good reputation for that brand name, right? Yeah. And so when this happens, a, a different guy um, decides to buy the business. Um, I guess he owned a, a store in one of the – he owned a different business completely, but it was in one of the same strip malls as a Ziggy store. So when he saw all this happen, he said, well, maybe I'll buy that that business and see what I can – if I can clean it up. And uh, maybe he thought – 
you know, marijuana would be legal sometime soon and he wanted to get, I don't know exactly his motivation, but you know, business opportunity. It's an existing brand that's been around. Of course. There are 12 locations. Anyway, he bought them and I think he narrowed it down to six stores and he was kind of cleaning it up a little bit from what I understand. And, uh, I guess the police or some law enforcement agency started harassing him, harassing the land property owners of some of the strip malls or commercial properties where his stores were, you know, threatening things like we're going to, you know, use civil asset forfeiture and we'll take your property if you continue renting out space to these criminal, you know, what we believe are criminal businesses or seven criminal stuff. Look at what the owner just went, you know, he's in jail for doing that stuff. Yeah. And so, um, I think, and what Chelsea, the owner of Ziggy's, he had, um, filed a lawsuit, from what I understand, a restraint, he was seeking a restraining order maybe, something like that, against the police, basically saying whatever the previous owner did is not, not relevant, problem, it's not yeah. related to me, it's not my problem, and you have no legal right to harass, threaten my, you know, threaten the property owners of these of these commercial spaces and force them to kick me out. Um, you just can't do that. And, um, and a federal judge, Judge Heaton, um, agreed with him apparently, and I saw this headline about judge issues order. I think for Ziggy's in favor of Ziggy's, something like that. So I sent it to Robert and I said, "Hey, check this out. You know, this federal judge thinks the policing to leave Ziggy's alone because of this new owner and so on and on. So you might check into that. Might contact that guy and see who his attorneys are or whatever, and um, see if you can get a hold of that." ruling and read it and then uh right after that that same week actually i think i read about this other story on facebook um adam McAllister. it was about this store called the funky monkey it's a store in McAllister. right as you're going into McAllister on highway nine um they do tattoos and piercings and they have uh adult toys and uh pipes and incense and tapestries all that stuff and um, they've been there for a really long time, from what I understand. And the police there um, had raided the store under the suspicion that they were selling K2 or synthetic marijuana, if I remember correctly, and did not actually find any, from what I understand, but did take all their pipes, took all the money in the store, and also went to the bank uh, in, a, in a move, a pretty, a pretty extreme move, that the, didn't even happen in our case, but they went to the bank and froze the bank accounts of not only the two owners, but the the owners or husband and wife, the wife's mother's bank account, because the mother was actually the founder, or maybe she had owned the company for the business for a long yeah. time. The husband and wife had just bought it from her a few months prior, probably six months prior. They, they thought she had bankrolled it. So yeah, so they went too. and froze... Fifty or seventy, fifty thousand dollars, something like that. It was a lot of money, and the story was about how, basically, without any charges being filed, without any court proceedings, that they had gotten all their stuff back and all their money back, and it was like uh, the picture was uh, this: these two attorneys and this and the business owners. I think they were in it, and this big conference table at the attorney's office and they had all these boxes on it and then pipes it was all their, stuff, was all their stuff and it was like you know funky monkey back open or something mm-hmm. and so what had happened is the police there the DA there had threatened to 
you know, if you know, we didn't find what we were looking for, but you know, we're going to keep this stuff though. Mm-hmm. And if you contest it, we're going to file criminal charges against you for possession of drug paraphernalia, illegal funds, all this stuff. So just let it go, and we'll let you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we're taking your money. Yeah. Money. <laughs> we're taking all your products. <laughs> so, um, uh, so those uh, business owners, they, I don't know how they knew Brecken and Blake, Wagner and Lynch Law mm-hmm. Firm, right there in downtown McAllister. But they got, they got with them. Um, the attorneys called the bluff for the police and said, well, you know, these aren't drug paraphernalia. And you're not just going to take their property and their money. And if you want to go to trial, then in Brecken's exact terms, fuck it, let's go to trial. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's exactly well, I mean, seriously, that's, that seems to like, I mean, especially like with your case here, it's like no one was ever willing to yeah. just call their bluff on it. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that can give you a little glimpse of into why they ended up being our attorneys later on in our trial. But, you know, I read about this case, sent that to Robert. And I said, hey, Robert, check this out. This case had a McAllister. So if glass pipes are just illegal to exist, as Norman police are proclaiming, then uh, I don't know how, because this store just got all their stuff back, and they didn't even have to go to, there were no criminal charges filed, they didn't go to court, yeah. and the police didn't find illegal substances, and so they had to give them back their property. And so... Because it's not illegal to exist as an Norman Police Department. Did they still keep their money? The, the civil assets? No, they got. Well, from my understanding, almost all of it back. Okay. I can't. I don't know exactly the explanation for why they didn't get all of it back, but I think they got ninety-nine percent of it back. Sure. There was some amount they did. This is Pittsburgh County, yeah. Southeast Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I don't know what goes on. There. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so yeah, told Robert about that case. He contacted the Wagner and Lynch guys. Um, they reckon, I guess, I don't know if he's necessarily the senior partner, but his name is first, uh, Wagner, Brecken Wagner. Mm -hmm. He came up to Norman, uh, came to the store, um, did a public presentation that anybody could come to in the, what was the pipe room at the time at the original store where the pipes and everything were kept were in a separate room. The owner of the building had insisted on it when Robert moved the business into it that they be in a separate room where, and it made sense because uh, Robert wanted to also make sure anybody that went in there was over 18. Like some, anybody that could legally sure. purchase tobacco just figured you got to be 18 and show yeah. your ID to come in this room. Because not people just wandering in. and yeah. yeah. And to allow anybody, including kids, you know, parents, of their kids to come in the store because it sold furniture and clothing and, you know, jewelry and things like that. So, you know, people would come in, look around at the artwork, and, you know, your kids could come in. There was a pizza place next door and a and a family video store on the other side next door. So people would sometimes yeah. be walk, waiting around, you know, getting their food. Anyway, um, so, but pipes and everything in a separate room. So anybody could still come in. There's got to be 18 to go in this room. And um, so uh, Brecken held his little... Um, presentation in there and we filmed it and everything and Brecken said this is what the law is this is why these are not illegal to exist uh, I don't you know it doesn't I don't care what the Norman Police Department says these are not illegal to exist and yeah. this is why and this is legal here's an example of what would not be legal um, you know there was there are some stipulations about the size and diameter of pipes and basically the state law does aim to 
prohibit specifically pipes that would be used for meth. Okay. You know, crack pipes. That, you would, that's all I could ever find. Yes. Bef- even before exactly. all this happened, was yeah. like I know there was some kind of like it talks know, about has to be a certain diameter, yes, and length and inches. And it talks about things like that. Yeah. And that was the and, and we you know went as far as we spoke to the uh, state rep Mike Shelton. He's not in the state. He's not in the mm-hmm. uh, legislature anymore. But he's who uh, primarily authored the current paraphernalia laws um, several years ago. And he was very clear that no, it was his intent was absolutely these specific types of pipes and things that he would see in gas stations around the city, especially in the northeast side of the city where he represented okay. um, OKC northeast side. And so that was the intent. We spoke with several other um, uh, legislators and former legislators who uh, confirmed that exact same thing. Our intent was never that all pipes are illegal in the state of Oklahoma. That is not correct. Specifically about these. Well, certain types. Yes. And so anyway, um, we didn't sell any of those types of pipes. Uh, we're not accused of selling those types of pipes. Anyway, so uh, um, based on that, Robert felt very confident that he could put all those things back on the shelves. And, you know, you know it was either that or close the business. So based on these attorneys' advice, these two cases in Oklahoma City and McAllister – Robert put all the product he had back on the shelves and business picked up, you know, immediately because there were no other pipe stores in Norman. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and a few weeks later, a month or so, um, is when I started working here. And it was because throughout that summer, I'd actually been looking for a more full-time regular day job. Uh-huh. Uh, city council only pays a hundred dollars a month and that's by statute can only be changed by a vote of the people. It's been that way since 1981, and there's never, I guess, really been a good time to ask this public for a two hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's just so many other things. Yeah. You know, the city never has enough money for a lot of really important issues. Sure. So the idea of paying city council more has never really been big on the priority list. I think it has grown more traction over the years. A lot of people have thought it does take a lot of work and commitment, and if it doesn't pay time. anything, it could limit who can do it. Sure. Know? You know, if somebody doesn't have enough money, you know, or enough time to spare like that, they can't afford to be on city council, you know. Uh, You know, I'm not married and I don't have children, um, and uh, I have a pretty low, you know, uh, expense lifestyle for the most part. So I've been able to do it and get by. And at the time, um, I also, like I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it on, on the record here, but I work... Um, the door at a local music venue here in Norman called The Deli on Campus Corner. I've been around for 40, 50 years now. Live music seven nights a week. But as a side gig, I've worked the door there for about nine years, and it's a pretty good deal. You get to talk to people that you know are out at nighttime. And yeah. a lot of people, especially since I've been on city council, appreciate that I still do it. You know, They're like, I don't know if any other elected officials you know, work at a bar at night and you know, sweep <laughs> Cigarette butts yeah. off the sidewalk at two a.m. But <laughs> or even just another job sometimes. Yeah, I mean, just that alone. Much yeah, less yeah, yeah. At the deli, and I like that it lets me you know stay in contact with some you know folks that you might not see come to city hall or you know and so but there's still issues that you know go on and some people just will see me at the door and be like hey you know that thing and mm-hmm. so yeah. I like doing it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, so I did that and I had uh, I had worked for a small business in Norman. It was a, a a space exploration company actually called Astronomics. Uh, oh, wow. Cool. Primarily online retail, but uh, 
space exploration equipment, telescopes primarily, and equipment to go along with that. So a lot of people that do, you know, yeah. build, you know, build uh, an observation stuff in their backyard or whatever, or real into it, spend thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I did that for a couple of years. It was a company based out of Norman. I did just retail sales, basically answer calls and answer questions. And no rockets involved. Right? Yeah, I didn't have to call anybody. <laughs> People called me and I had to, yeah. So I did that and uh, did that for a couple of years. And I had, you know, uh, there was changes there. And it was not extremely flexible with my schedule and city council and some other things. So I had left that job, and um, at the time, my girlfriend and I had lived together, and uh, she had a pretty good job, and city council in the deli, you know, we got, we were fine, so um, it was no urgent thing for me to go get a full-time gig, um, but it had been a, a few months, and I had turned down a couple jobs at OU, um, they were unwilling to be flexible with city council completely. And I had applied with, for a security job at the uh, Stevenson Cancer Research Center at OU here in Norman, which is actually the security is run by the OUPD. And apparently the OUPD has a policy uh, that uh, uh, male officers can only cannot have long hair and can only have a mustache. And so for those of you that do not know what it looked like, I've yeah. had long hair for about 15 years of my life so far. That wasn't uh, Almost since I was in high school. And I have a mustache and a goatee. And I feel like I would look ridiculous with just the mustache. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I was basically like, so OUPD is sort of sexist here. Males can't have long hair. That's weird. And, um, and I can only have like a 70s porn mustache. That's okay. So that's it. And you're not going to be flexible with my city council schedule. So okay, well, I'm going to have to decline that one. Thank you. And um, as a city council member, you know, there's a lot of business connections I could reach out to in that instance. But you know, I'm sure, like I know, you know, some of the guy, the founders of uh, Ideal Homes or some big development companies in town. If, if I had to reset and say, hey, I really need some kind of, you know, job during, you know, eight to five or whatever that's flexible city council, you know, secretary, I don't know, something. Um, I'm sure they could have got one, but I don't think it would look very good for a city councilman to go go to work for the largest home builder in town. You sure, know? yeah. You know, so conflict of interest. Basically, I found if you had any ethics, it could be difficult to find a job while you're in a current elected official because a lot of small businesses would be concerned about the impact to their business that you being an elected official could have could be positive if people like you but if you vote for something bad just one time and it's happened to council members before who are small business owners themselves Mm -hmm. where you know they vote for something that customers of theirs didn't like and they lose business you know so a small business hiring me could be risky and if I have ethics going to work for a bigger company in town could be a problem too yeah stigma uh, so yeah so i was taking my time though and i had mentioned it to robert you know i you know this is what i do city council this is my schedule and yeah i don't really have a full-time job right now so anyway um after he started selling pipes again and, and all that stuff he called me a couple weeks ago and said you know steven i really appreciate all your help you know arranging those meetings and uh, finding those articles for me you know it's business has really picked back up and I really appreciate that. Um, I know you had mentioned a couple times before over the summer, you know, that you were looking for 
full-time job and you needed something flexible and you know I have this other business that I run and you know I I really just can't I can't be down at the friendly market and run that all the time and uh, I guess the general manager who had started the store had uh, had left a few months before and they were just kind of cobbling together you know yeah. some management and with sales way down and no pipes they didn't really have much to manage I guess so he just said, we need somebody down that can be down there full-time during the day. He said, like, I got this guy named Cody. Uh, he works here at my my uh, business here during the day, but in the afternoons he comes down from the market and he can close up and everything. He does the ordering and he's pretty knowledgeable about stuff. And they're like, and we got Max too. Max has been here for a few months and he's real familiar with the stuff. And so you guys will be you guys and, um, you know, if you're interested, I'd like to you know have you come on and be the general manager of the store, and uh, you know we'll be completely flexible with your schedule. You can make the schedule if you want, um, and I'll pay you this much. And the amount he told me was more than I had been I had made at any job. I I had mostly worked at other than that astronomics, which I think paid me around nine dollars an hour. I think which was good, which was the best I'd made at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before that, I'd worked in you know the kitchen at Hideaway Pizza. I had been a cashier and a and a host at Hideaway Pizza for six years. Um, I'd worked in various restaurants and a couple of retail things. I'd spent two seasons working for the OU football team on the staff there when I uh, went to OU for a year. But I spent two seasons on this on the team as a video camera guy. I filmed every single practice and every single game for two oh, years. Yeah. I had to travel with the team and all that stuff. I played football growing up in high school and everything and ran track. So, um, And I was in media a lot uh norman high norman public schools has a really amazing media program so they have the school channel where you learn production and editing and how to put on a you know a, a show and how to operate equipment so um yeah i landed a job with the football team filming because i knew how to do that stuff. so anyway i had done jobs like that and back then i think that job paid five fifteen an hour it was like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to different times yeah. travel around. I got like free shoes and gear and stuff. Sure, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, so you know this offer was pretty nice. Um, offer to work for a small family-owned business in the district I represent that is willing to be flexible with city council and it's going to pay me well and you know. Uh, Okay. Does it get well, any better? Yeah, really? I yeah. said. Well, I need to. I'm going to have to meet with the city attorney office and uh, you know talk to them about whether there's a conflict of interest or get their opinion about you know this legal issue that you know has been apparent and you know because it's like the Norman Police Department thinks this is illegal. You know, is it a conflict of interest? Uh, what you know from the city attorney standpoint? Should sure. I? It's so. I met with the city attorney for lunch one day. We talked about it. I showed him. I shared with him those articles too about what you know, in Oklahoma City and McAllister, and uh, went over all that. I told him about the job offer, and I said they are selling pipes. You know, they put those back on the shelves based on these cases, based on these this legal advice from this law firm out of McAllister, um, based on the opinion of Tim Kirkendall, the former DA, all that stuff. And it was about an hour and a half long lunch meeting. And at the end, you know, I said, so, you know, what do you think about all this? Do you think, you know, should I take this job? Is it, would you advise that I not? Based on conflict of interest and his exact words, very simply, I don't see a problem with it. Shook my hand. Uh, he paid for lunch and uh, we left. 
And he walked back to City Hall. I got in my car. That's fairly explicit. Yeah. <laughs> I got in the car. I called my girlfriend first. I said, hey, yeah, um, city attorney says uh, it's fine. So uh, I think I'm going awesome. to accept that job. I'm going to call Robert back. So I get off the phone with her. I call Robert and I say, hey, Robert, uh, great news. City attorney says it's fine. Um, he doesn't see a problem with it at all. And uh, uh, so, you know, I can start whenever you want. And uh, so I started on September 8th, 2015. Um, and, uh, started, you know, putting my touch on the store, moving some stuff around. I've always had a pretty good eye for, uh, arranging furniture and I, my best subject in school was geometry actually. So uh, yeah. pretty good with shapes and making things fit <laughs> inside of spaces yeah. pretty well. It's very good at Tetris. So, uh, uh, and, um, and so, you know, started doing that stuff and then, um, you know, a place like that, people would come, you know, just knowing that I post on Facebook, hey, everybody, I'm proud and excited to accept the job as uh, you're the business, you're in the district I represent here at the Friendly Market, so come see me anytime, I'll be here, you know, come see the story, you can talk about city issues, whatever, you know, so pretty exciting, very publicly open about what I was doing, where I was working, what we were selling there. Was it down some alleyway? No, no, like yeah. one of the because I was so active on social media, one of the things I started doing was like posting about stuff on Facebook. I'd post pictures of pipes, I'd post pictures of papers, whatever I could do yeah. to promote the store, furniture, whatever we had. And, um, you know, that was working. We were starting to grow pretty rapidly. Um, a couple months went by in November, early November. Um, Robert sent me and Cody and my girlfriend actually paid for all three of us to go to Colorado to Denver to an industry trade show called Champs. It's I think the biggest trade show in the industry, and they do it in Las Vegas a couple times a year. They do it in Denver. They do it in a couple other places. And um, I had never been to Colorado before. It was the only state that touches Oklahoma that I'd never been to. Oh, wow. And uh, so I was like, awesome. Uh, we stayed in downtown Denver. The convention center was across the street. Um, 600 plus vendors of all sorts of pipes, everything you could think of that would be in a store. And, uh, so it was pretty amazing. Had a great time. We were there for three days. Um, got to go to Boulder, got to drive around, went to see Red Rocks. Uh, there wasn't a concert, but just drove and <laughs> yeah. walked around, uh, and, uh, just, uh, explored a little bit. It was great. Came back. Uh, things are going great at the store. We got some great ideas. Um, I think the day after we got back, I was working, and a guy came in the store, uh, and I recognized his face. And uh, after a few minutes, I, I recognized he's an armed police officer. And, uh, you know, he came to buy some pipes and stuff. Uh, he asked a few questions. Uh, he was under, not, I didn't know he was undercover. He was undercover. But I thought, you know, um, We've been pretty open about this. He could just be uh, coming in here off. You yeah. know, this is private. You can come in here if he wants. He's mm -hmm. over 21. I checked his ID. Yeah. It was a real ID because when the police come in undercover, they use a real fake ID. <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. yeah. It it's legitimate. It's, it, yeah, <laughs> under a scanner, it would show up yeah. as that name under that everything. Like, wow. uh, I mean, it's from the state. Mm -hmm. They get it. So, um, 
you know, and I'm telling them we have some information about the state law and about those cases and why we sell pipes. And mm-hmm. He asked about that, and I'm talking to him about it. I'm like, yeah, so this went on, and he stopped selling them, and these attorneys and these cases, and that's why we sell them in here. And they're in this room because uh, we want to make sure that anybody comes in here is over 18 and, uh, you know, is of legal age to smoke tobacco or any other smokable herbs. And, you know, we sell a lot of other things. So we want people to be able to come in, even if they're, you know, anyway. And, um, you know, it's I, really out there. I mean, you're tell, talking oh, yeah, to this yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't know, I, I, it didn't hit me exactly when I was talking to him that he was a police officer. I just knew that I recognized him really well. And it, it, I was starting to think, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Because I go to every police academy graduation. There's sometimes two a year, but usually one a year. And I go every time and I introduce myself to every single cadet that graduates and I give them my city council card. And so I know over, you do that for six, seven years. And Start remembering. You, by, the, by that time, you, <laughs> you, know, you really might know everybody in the police department. Yeah. You know, there's 150 patrol officers, seven years, you might you know, recognize a whole lot of them. So, uh, so he bought some stuff. He got in his car and left. Um, I watched what car he got into and left. I went to the back, got on Facebook, went to the Norman PD Facebook page. And just started scrolling through their pictures, and sure enough, I come across his picture of him getting his badge pinned on at his academy graduation a few mm-hmm. years before. He didn't have a beard and mustache, and he wasn't wearing a baseball cap, obviously, in yeah. that picture. But his face was very, is very prominent, like yeah. very prominent cheekbones, and you know, kind of chiseled face, yeah. you know, and so definitely recognizable. And so I printed off that picture, I uh, posted it in the office. So, and I told everybody that came in, I said, hey, everyone, so, you know, other stores have been shut down in the past in Norman, and Norman has a controversial history of stores like this being shut down. You know, Robert stopped selling pipes for a while because of this. So, um, I just want you to know this person who came in, um, he is a police officer. He may not have been undercover. He may have just been coming in here as a customer, and he is absolutely welcome to do so because we're not doing anything illegal. Um, but just be aware, always be aware yeah. of what you say in your surroundings and what customers say and do, and just always be careful. And I remember the advice that Breck and Wagner told us back then, and if you weren't here, this is what he said. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, uh, and that became a big issue later on, the fact that I printed off a picture of an undercover police officer and posted it on a wall for people to see. That just like they made a chapter. They ass, made oh well they were like I put his life in danger. <laughs> he his if some, you know you're working like with the syndicate, you know Yeah, well if anybody would have seen that that he's worked undercover, they might, you know the real big drug kingpin that he's been you know, he's been undercover before. If they recognized him, I could have put his life in danger type of stuff. And I was like, well, I mean, they have just you could have not put his picture on Facebook, too. Yeah, you know, if he's like an undercover, undercover narcotics officer, maybe his picture should have been scrubbed off your Facebook yeah. page yeah. from 2012. Because you, know? you were able to just do some Yeah, work I and... was able to look for about 20 minutes and found it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, that came up later as a thing. But, anyway, um, it was uh, December 1st. 2015, I had opened the store. We were open for about an hour. And um, I was in the back. At that time, we weren't busy enough to need two people right away. Usually, I'd work alone for about the first three hours, and then Max would come in, and a few hours later, Cody would come in, and those two would close or what you know. You know and uh, 
we had a couple other employees too, uh, Crystal and Joseph, who would work sometimes. Um, those two were not charged, interestingly enough. I'll get to that. But uh, uh, not everybody that worked there was charged with anything, just yeah. selectively. But um, I was working alone. I heard the bell in the door ring, and I got up from the desk in the back. As I started to walk up to the front, I heard somebody say, Hello, Norman Police. We have a warrant to search the premises. Um, anybody back here? Just come on out. And so I was coming out anyway, and I was like, uh, like, is anybody else? No guns drawn, nothing like that. No uniformed officers, no marked patrol cars in the parking lot, nothing. Just a white van parked out front. Plain clothes officers with um, a badge around their neck, like on a lanyard type of thing. Um, you know, very casual, like I said. Uh, several of them had their shirts untucked, so their guns weren't even visible. It was just... Uh, not like what you would see on TV, like with Is a radio. Is this how they usually do? Like, like, for instance, the No, other mentioned. stores had been different. Other stores, there were patrol cars and, you know, People in uniformed uniform. officers, yeah. carrying all that type of stuff. So, um, whether it was because they knew I was there, I don't know. In later on, they, they made, they proclaimed they had no idea who I was. That when they had been surveillancing the store, they had no idea who I was. That, they didn't know I was a city councilman. They just knew I worked there. And because uh, we found out that they had actually been parked across the street at a 7-Eleven gas station parking lot. Taking, That's the pictures I saw. Yeah, taking pictures of the yeah. store for a couple weeks of everybody that yeah. went in, uh, which was relevant later because all these people they thought were breaking the law, yet they stopped nobody yeah. <laughs> and stopped them from taking this paraphernalia there. Yeah. So anyway, um, um, they... Uh, Pretty polite. They asked me, you know, to open the cash register first, really, if anybody else is in there. I was like, no, it's just me. And then uh, they asked me to show them around the whole store. And with the register thing, they just said, we're going to, you know, we're going to get in the register. You know, you can let us in or we're going to get in. The warrant says we can get in. So, you know, just go ahead and open it and save time. And, uh, and then they, they, some officers went into the room immediately and just started like, looking through inventory and writing stuff. They started bubble wrapping and then they had, they had me sit down with a guy and I was like, yeah, I probably should call the owner of the store first. And our attorney's like, well, we'll let you, but just, you know, hold on a minute and why don't you have a seat here with detective uh, Lowe, you know, he's just going to talk to you for a minute, you know? And uh, I was like, okay. And it's, you know, it's easy to say like, when you haven't ever experienced something like that, it, you know, remain silent, don't say anything. And, you know, yeah. When you're, you know, you're by yourself and the police just come in and raid your store with, you know, like eight people. And, you know, they're like, yeah, well, actually just hang on and have a seat. And yeah. We're just going to talk to you for a second. So yeah. you're, you know, yeah, okay. You just happily agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. easy to. Yeah, you know, they we can actually, get out of here real quick. I mean, this is kind of what I've learned over the years. I'm like, I think they're trained. They use They absolutely people, you know, are. Which absolutely. It's fine to a degree. Absolutely are. And then, um, you know, and uh, thankfully I did not say anything that incriminated myself. I had to listen to myself on recording and trial, which I hate hearing myself talk. So I don't watch videos. Of <laughs> so you're not going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> I probably, I, I have listened to a podcast myself before. I probably will listen to this. Maybe. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, just like my voice doesn't sound like that anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, he talks to me for about 30 minutes and I'm just like, I'm general manager. Yes. Yeah, or the city council and so on and on. And, uh, yeah, these attorneys, they've said all this is fine. Anyway, 
they uh, finally gets done talking to me. He's like, all right, um, yeah, go ahead. You can call the owner if you want. And I call Robert. I tell him, yeah, the police are here. They said they have a warrant. They're taking everything. So you might want to get down here. You might want to call the attorneys. Um, so uh, um, they said, all right, you can, you can leave. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll call you uh, when we're done. And you can come back and get the key and you know, whatever you want to do from there. And so I was like, okay. So I'm standing outside. Robert shows up. They won't let him inside. They're like, no. There's an officer at the door. At the door, and he says, no. I, uh, you know, and what he tells Robert is, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we don't want marijuana legalized. We don't want your element in our town. Yeah. You know. Period. Yeah. That's it. And you're not going inside. You know, when we're done, we'll let you back in. And so. You know, we just hang out. I think it was five, six hours. And then when they left, they gave us the key back, went inside. They had taken pretty much everything out of that room anyway. They had taken all the money in the store, mm-hmm. uh, out of the register and everything. And uh, uh, our attorneys, Breck and Blake, they, uh, uh, there was no media news of this, and we didn't post about it. I didn't post about it. We are just like, okay, we'll just see what happens here. Yeah. Attorneys say, okay, um, go ahead and restock. Because uh, I guess that's the same thing they had the funky monkey do. Was go ahead and restock and just continue mm-hmm. on with your business as usual. So, um, restock. Okay, how do we do that? Uh, so the next morning, 6 a.m., Robert puts me on an airplane flight to Austin, Texas. Um, I get down there. I rent a van. And I visit two of our distributors, uh, 420 Science and Grav Labs. And they just load me up with whatever they've got lying around, basically. They're pretty great people down there. and um, So I spent the day hanging out with them, loaded me up, and then I went and hung out and had uh, lunch with one of Robert's friends that lives down there. And, and then I drove it back. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, we uh, restocked the store. The transcript did an article with Cody on the front page, holding one of the pipes, says, Friendly Market restocks, reopens, whatever. And so... Um, the next week, uh, 10 days later, 10 days after the raid, so on December 10th, the raid was on December mm-hmm. 1st. December 10th, I think it was, uh, in the afternoon, get a call from our attorneys. I'm at the store working, actually, and uh, get a call from Breck, and he says, Stephen, uh, I'm going to need you to go ahead and leave the store. Um Go home. You can go. I wouldn't go home. You should go somewhere else. But uh, there is a warrant been issued for you and Robert's arrest, um, charges of possession of drug paraphernalia, and for um, a felony charge for the basically the the money in the store they claimed was drug funds, and because it was concealed in not only a cash register but a bank bag that was in my briefcase. As the general manager of the store, my job was to take deposits from the previous day to the bank, right? So, for the only way for that not to be illegal was I would have had to be waving the like holding the money out so that it wouldn't be concealed. But if you put it in anything, it's concealment of illegal funds, so felony charge. So pretty serious. Yeah, we're pretty shocked at this, and I'm just thinking it was oh, just wow. you and Robert. Just you, just me and Robert. Just me and Robert for that initially. It, it mm-hmm. expands later, but yeah. Um, 
and I know this is a really long story, but it's no, it's really fine. detailed. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of details, and it's sometimes you think of parts of it. And, uh, but um, yeah, it's just Robert and I, and um, so I get hold of Robert, and um, so it's too late in the day to go appear at the courthouse. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. And you're not going to. So that. you know, did they intentionally wait till the end of the day so that we couldn't? go up here and get this taken care of without having a warrant out for our arrest. You know, which means Who's the police say? could raid our houses at the middle of the night. Yeah. You know, who knows? So, um, Robert and I stay the night together uh, out of Cleveland County. <laughs> but actually, uh, in Robert's neighborhood, it's a gated community um, in McLean County. So, but it's still District 21, which is Mashburn, Greg Mashburn, the DA represents a three-county district, and that's how it usually is. And so, still in his district, so we're not, you know, we don't know how the police going to come trying to raid his house in the middle of the night. And so, anyway, our attorneys had called down. They had arranged and said, "Look, Robert and Stephen will appear at the courthouse at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning for an arraignment, and we'll do all that. You know, so no need to raid their houses. They will appear. Yeah, guarantee it. But I don't know. We don't know." <laughs> they will or not. Yeah. So yeah, Robert and I like walk around this whole neighborhood like late at like we we hardly sleep. We just we like walk around, so we're not actually at the house. And anyway, um, uh, the next morning does come. They didn't raise <laughs> come get us. We go up here at the courthouse willingly and get arraigned. And an arraignment means you gotta you know the uh, judge tells you what the charges are. You agree that you acknowledge it. Blah blah blah. And then you have to go to the county jail and do a walkthrough and get fingerprints and a mugshot. So we leave the courthouse. We drive ourselves to the jail. Uh, we wait in the lobby of the jail for two and a half hours. And then they finally take us to the back. And they, like, you know, pat us down, check us for whatever. And, they, and then we sit, sit in the back for a minute. They give us a sandwich. It's pretty gross. Uh, <laughs> And then they do the mugshot, they do the fingerprints, and then we sit there for a little bit. And then uh, they're like, all right. They had like one person doing processing. It was just like the most inefficient. Yeah. Just, God. What year is it? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so they do it, and they're like, all right, all right, you guys are good to go. And they give us our stuff back, and they leave. And um uh, Robert has like this fundraiser event for his other, you know, company that he's got to go to up in the city. Um, cause he's a lot of his clients for that other company are corporate clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I just say his other company is a PI firm. So they do you know, investigation sure. work for companies, uh, workers comp, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So anyway, he's got to go meet, you know, these fundraisers or whatever, you know, conference or deal, you know, for clients. So he's got to go and, I haven't even been on social media since this really all went down. So I go home and I'm like checking everything and seeing this city councilman charged with a drug related felony. Oh, so that's when the news. Yes. And this article from about how the city attorney denies telling me that it was okay, that he actually told me it was absolutely illegal and you should not take the job. Steve. Who printed that? The transcript. The transcript. Norman, yeah. Norman transcript. Yeah. yeah. Cause they called him. Cause in my quote about being charged, I guess I made a quote. I made a thing about when I got charged about that and the city attorney saying it's okay and I met yeah, with him. Yeah. Well, the next day, they had an article from him quoting him saying, no, I absolutely told him it was illegal. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. And uh, 
And uh, so, you know, it's blowing up big time. Mm-hmm. You know, city councilman charged with drug-related felony and yeah. multiple misdemeanors for possession. Of that's easy for and that's all people to see. Start yeah, pe- picking up. Yeah, there's nothing like, about. There's no drugs involved. It's just pipes. Yeah, that he works at a pipe store. It's oh, they're selling drugs. He's a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. They raided his house. You know, all this stuff. And. Uh, no, they don't really talk about Robert. <laughs> They're talking about like yeah, every yeah, article. Who's Robert? And it's not just a transcript. <laughs> yeah. It's every yeah. news publication, the Tulsa World, uh, you know, the Oklahoma and every news small town news TV. station, every yeah. all of them, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's blowing up. I don't know what this means as far as my me serving on city council. I don't know if I'm merely being charged with this. If the other council members are going to like kick me off. If there's going to be a recall. If I don't even know what this means. And, yeah. uh, I mean, all that stuff. And, um, you know, the public support was pretty immediate. You know, um, people came out, support. There were people protesting outside the store, like, this is ridiculous, you know, on the news and everything. Uh, people were reaching out, like, I can't believe the police are doing this. This is so stupid. And, you know, again, Norman pro- is a progressive and yeah. more liberal town. The police were not being representative of the views of the public here. And so people were expressing that. This is ridiculous. We, I mean, uh, Stephen works there. Yeah. We love Stephen. You um, know? I, I, I mean, I would agree <laughs> with a lot of what they said, but some of it was like, you know, don't you have better times? Exactly. Or, don't or, you have you better, know, better stuff things to do? to do? Yeah. Yeah. I was in my third year, almost third year being on the council at that point. The police at the time had been advocating for a Bearcat, which is a armored vehicle an offensive, defensive, you know, they're like, it's not a matter of if, but when something bad happens and we need it. It's a real expensive vehicle. And this was just on the hills of the, um, the you know, Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, and all yes. the unrest and the riots. You know, that had happened this fall, that, yeah. in 2015, that fall. That, he was killed in August. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that same time, the police in Norman were wanting to get this armored Bearcat vehicle. Police militarization. And then I'm, you know, and then they're spending two weeks surveillancing the friendly market pipe store, you know, that our sales were a good day was $500. Mm-hmm. If we made $500, that was a very good, our daily goal back then I think was three twenty four, four fifty. dollars So, I mean, not a big enterprise here. Yeah. And we're, we're a sales tax paying business. We're paying yeah. taxes to the state, to the city. City council member works there. We're posting stuff on on social media. We're not hiding anything. You know, we're going above and beyond, which became an issue later. But we're requiring people to be twenty one or eighteen to go in this. You, there was no law that said you had to be eighteen to buy a pipe. And so they tried to actually turn it around us and say the fact that they were requiring an ID to go in that store shows that they, this was all a ruse. Water pipe, tobacco, asking for IDs. It's all a ruse. They're trying to fool everybody. But common sense tells us all those pipes are illegal. And what they're for. uh, Especially since you need to be an adult. That's my best uh, prosecutor impression. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) Um, And so, um, uh, you know, all of those things going on nationally, locally, and I was opposed to that, that vehicle. Um, I was opposed to civil asset forfeiture, which was how the police department was proposing to pay for it. I hadn't been completely opposed to the vehicle itself 
um, in prior discussions because at the time I really did have a good relationship with the chief of police. Uh, we had just hired him a few years ago before I was on council, but he was very progressive, I would describe. Uh-huh. Um, he had significantly increased the diversity of the police department from a race standpoint and a gender standpoint. Um, he had brought back you know, public ride-alongs of the police. He brought back motorcycle units so the police weren't just in their car all the time. He brought back the community policing philosophy, like go to the barbecues, go get out, go see that business owner. If they're sweeping their front porch, get out of their car and go to and say, hey, I'm John, and I patrol this area regularly. Here's my car. Call me. Sure. You know, that type of stuff. So it was great. It was a big change from what we'd had before. And uh, the Norman Police Department historically does not have a very good reputation. If you look at news stories and things that have happened in that department as far as corruption and criminal activity, there are stories that date back decades. Um, there's even a prominent homicide, double homicide in Norman from the 70s that involved a Norman police officer. Uh, anybody can Google that. It's public information. Um, there was a steroid scandal in the mid-2000s that resulted in several officers being fired. I mean, things, problems. You can and, look into all sorts of things. Yes. Yeah, so, breath of fresh air. The new chief was hired from out of state, from a bigger city. And uh, he came in and made changes. And... But he started advocating for this armored vehicle in the wake of a lot of these different unrest issues. And he was critical of how police responded in places like Ferguson uh-huh. about how he said, you know, those riots were in large part caused by the police response. You know, what was a peaceful protest turns into a riot when the police show up in armored cars and riot gear and machine guns. And, you know, that's how, how we do it here. In our community, we don't think that would happen here. But there have been hostage situations where we think a vehicle like this might be needed. We need something to protect our officers if we need to go in and get somebody. You know, many of our concerns are, well, are they going to be used for, like, drug raids in the middle of the night? Uh, you know, are they going to be parked across the street from the stadium on game days? I mean, how expensive is it to maintain this vehicle? Yeah. You know, and you're wanting to use civil asset forfeiture funds for it, which is a controversial revenue source that may or may not come from people who are not charged or convicted of a crime. You know, civil asset forfeiture allows law enforcement and the government to take your property even if you have not been charged with a crime or convicted. You don't have to be convicted. You don't even have to be charged. They just have to say they suspect it came from a drug deal or derived from drug activity and they can take your property and then you'll have to hire an attorney and contest it and you... Because the civil matter will have to prove that it's not from drug activity. So yeah. how do you prove your truck wasn't bought with drug money? That's why we <laughs> gladly tied your situation. We did, we did just a show just on that. And yeah. This is easy. You know, it's yeah. hand in hand. So um, those are reasons why I was opposed to it and to that vehicle being purchased. And some people believe that Friendly Market was raided because of my opposition to civil asset forfeiture and and I was openly critical of law enforcement in issues like Ferguson and um, uh, where I've always had a very strong interest in the police profession and investigation and detectives and, you know, all that stuff. I, you know, when I was a kid, I, they wore a cool uniform and their car, they get to drive a cool car. It's yeah. got lights on the top and, you know, they're here to help and they protect us from the bad guys, right? And if somebody does something bad, they go find them and get them. Yeah. And, um, you know, so uh, 
I was always very interested in it. I went on a lot of ride-alongs before I was on city council. I just thought it was very interesting. I thought at one time when I was younger that I might even want to be a police officer. And, um, you know, in Norman, I was like, my hometown, I could, you know, maybe help out and help make things better. But uh, help set an example. You know? And uh, so I've always been pretty supportive of the police department, but I've always been very critical, too. Ever since I got politically um, involved, which happened around 2007 when I was 23, 24 years old, first time I ever got arrested in my whole life, it was in Texas. Uh, I was a passenger in a car. My friend was driving. It was his car. We got pulled over. He was speeding by a small town cop, Sanger, Texas. Um, we had smoked joint earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit of it was still left. It was in the console, and uh, the officer smelled it. He searched the car. He arrested us both. Um, they actually searched the car for about three and a half hours, multiple law enforcement agencies on the side of I-35. They thought we had a lot of, they thought we had bricks of it. Yeah. They thought there was a secret compartment, and they couldn't get into it, and they were like, just tell us how. Yeah. <laughs> and they had us in separate cars, you know, so they could like, well, your buddy says this, and your buddy, sure, that whole thing. And yeah. anyway, this whole long, drawn-out thing, they didn't find anything else but that little joint and a pipe, you know, a little one-hitter pipe, you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they arrested us both, though, took us to Denton County Jail, um, spent the night. I'd never been arrested before, never been in jail. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was all right though. It was in a room of like 20 other guys and they were all family. It was fine. Yeah. Everybody was in there for like low level bullshit, I would say. Yeah. And so we were like, yeah, and we were dressed kind of nice because we had actually just come from a Texas Rangers game. <laughs> and, uh, my friend's uncle owns a really nice jewelry store that's in the stadium and has its own like overlook balcony oh, wow. over the outfield okay, cool. so we had dressed nice to go to that and so we were in this jail cell and we look all well, we were dressed nice and we're like these young 20 guys my friend he looks like heath ledger uh long blonde hair he looks exactly like Heath ledger and i've got my long hair at the time and so we both just look like yeah ridiculous sitting there and uh anyway i never had any experience with the criminal justice system before and i'm raised by a single dad i'm an only child uh, my dad's not political at all. My family's not political at all, uh, really. And um, I didn't know much about politics. I didn't know any really much about Democrats or Republicans, liberal or conservative, or how I felt or fell into any of those categories. Um, and uh, I was old enough to vote in 2004, um, but I didn't. I didn't vote for the first time until 2008. But if I had voted in 2004, it um, I was registered to vote when I was 18. I just didn't vote. And I registered as a Republican, um, I think, because I was 18 and the president at the time was Republican. And um, 9-11 had happened shortly before then. Yeah. I was like, well, you know, we're at war and there's all this stuff going on. It's kind of the status quo. And, you know, Fox News says this. Sure. The other stations say that. And, you know, the president's Republican. And I, I don't know. We probably need to have a Republican. Uh, or we probably need to keep the current president because we're at war and we got all these things. Sure. And, you know, I didn't know anything. But I didn't vote at all. I was just, I registered Republican when I was 18. And then in 2007, when that arrest happened, um, spent the night in jail, got up that morning to see the judge. Uh, the lady saw the judge right before us. She had been arrested for a, a DUI and leaving the scene of an accident. 
and her bail was set at one thousand yeah. dollars. So my friend get up, my friend and I get up, and uh, we're charged with possession of marijuana less than two ounces, you know, and um, paraphernalia for the little pipe. And um, our bail is set at two thousand dollars each. And because we're out of state, it has to be paid in full. No, like, you know, 20% get a bail bond money. It has to be paid in full. So that was the first time I it really hit me. I was kind of like, wow. There are certain rules That's something here. wrong with that. Yeah. That lady had a DUI and left the scene of an accident while drunk. We had, like, half a joint and a pipe. And our bail is... Twice hers. Like, I'm not a judge here, but... <laughs> There's something wrong with that. Yeah. Um, before that moment, like I said, I had been registered Republican as far as being a registered voter, but had never voted at all. And I had watched some Fox News stuff. Like, my dad is, like, a big football fan. He cooks out. He doesn't get political at all. But he would go to work early in the morning. He would go to bed early at night. And um, uh, I would uh, stay up late, and I'd watch news stations I watched Fox News or stuff you know whatever and I was just you know I thought well you know I believed in the death penalty I thought you know just bad people and you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta punish those people that you know if you murder somebody you've gotta be murdered you've gotta be you know, put to death yourself mm-hmm. you know you gotta be punished and I thought you know, you know wars were justified and all these types of things and that the police were always honest would never lie yeah and the justice system was just and so if you were in it you must have done something right you know yeah. um which could be the case but is the punishment equitable having a pipe and a little bit of pot does it double the penalty of dui and leaving the scene of an accident so an example, so an I knew that I yeah. had broken the law. I had smoked marijuana, and it was illegal in yeah. Texas at that time and everywhere else. So uh, so I had broken the law for sure, but that was those not juxt- equitable. Those that juxtaposed was, kind of. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. So that hit me, and that's when I started to realize things. And I started thinking, I started just thinking a lot. And uh, the war on drugs became like the topic I started really thinking about. And I started hearing about this guy, this congressman named Ron Paul, who talked a lot about the war on drugs and mm-hmm. the prison population. And uh, he's like, yeah, that really makes a lot – what he's saying makes a lot of sense. I really, I'm really concerned about that. And he sounds right based on my experience. So that arrest, anyway, it happened in August of 2007 in Texas. My friend had a really good family attorney they hired. Well – I worked in the kitchen at Hideaway Pizza, and my, yeah. my dad's not wealthy. So I had a public defender I had to get. So because of that, I had to go to Denton, Texas, and appear every single time there was a hearing. So I had to go down there. And at the time, I rode a bicycle and didn't have a car. So I had to have a friend or family member drive me to Denton, Texas, and wait for me all day long while I sat in court waiting. Mo- many times it was waiting for my attorney to come say, yeah, it's been, they're going to delay it again and come back in three more months. So, thanks. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm just thinking, what do like really poor people do that don't have really good friends yeah. or a family member that could take yeah. me down there and wait for me all day long, like on a Tuesday, you know? So I'm really fortunate to have, you know, that thankfully. And my friend, he doesn't have to go up here because he's got a family attorney. So not a public defender. 
So a year goes by. I've had to go pierce six times down there. And thankfully, my public defender is actually a very good attorney. Leanne Breeding was her name, I think. And she was just a very good defense attorney doing pro bono work as a public defender from time to time. And she got my case. And so she was very nice to me. She, you know, hated having to make me come back every time. But um, she finally was able to get together with my friend's family attorney. They got a hold of the dash cam video from the police car from the Sanger police. And um, it um, showed that basically the police report was completely different than what the video showed about the events that had happened that night and how long it took them to search what they found and everything. And so... So what was stated in the police report? That it took 32 minutes. Oh, that wow. they... Yeah. Very quick, standard routine. Quick check. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, the video showed differently. Uh, the case was dismissed by the judge for an illegal search and seizure and a violation of our constitutional rights. And so... Uh, I don't know that that officer was reprimanded. I'm not sure what happened to him, but I never saw him or heard from him again. But, uh, I'd say that's pretty impressive, too. Like, how often do you think that actually... Very rare. Yeah, I just I mean, like, my friend had a good attorney, Yeah, and I just happened to have a good attorney, too. Did they ever ha- even happen to have, like, a dash cam? Like every- oh, no. Yeah, and this no, was, you know, not. 2007, so... That's actually even- ahead of its time. Yeah, and um, also, you know, when we got out of jail that morning... Um, just part of, uh, you know, telling the story of the whole experience here is we got out of jail and I had $12 on me. My friend had about $200 and they gave it back to us in a check. Checks. Yeah. And so Denton County Jail is out in the middle of kind of nowhere. And so we're like, okay, how do we go get his car out of impound? It's on the other side of Denton. We have checks and no cash. There's no Uber and no, car. And no iPhones <laughs> yeah. at the time. So we're able to get a hold of a cab company who, you know, they work in the area, so they do this all the time. But they're like, yeah, we can take you over to this gas station. They, they'll cash that check and then, you know, you can pay, pay for the fare. So they're like, okay, do that. Takes across town, get to those impound yard. And the lady's like, okay, do you guys have this form and stuff? We're like, no, we just came from the jail. Like, okay, well, you need this form from the arresting department before we can release the car and we're just like okay so how do we get that form and she's like well you're going to have to go to the Sanger Police Department and you're going to have to get them to print out this one I was like okay so how do we get to there yeah. <laughs> she's like I'm I'm sorry I don't really you know that's going to yeah, have that's to your figure problem. that out like, okay yeah. so we make a few phone calls and a cab ride up there is a little expensive it's about 8 miles up eight miles back so you know um and uh so we just kind of sit there in her little waiting room and she gets tired of us sitting there and she goes well okay well let me see i'm gonna call up there she calls up she says well they have a fax machine they can fax it over Uh, we're like okay great and uh do that we get my friend's car it's torn apart you know it's a mess we drive back to oklahoma you know get back and everything my girlfriend at the time she it was like, what in the hell happened to you? Yeah. I thought you were coming back last night. And then we all don't hear from you. I was like, well, let me tell you this. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that just going through that and then a years long of appearing in court only for it to be dismissed because the police lied on the police report, basically. That's the, you know, in the short of it there. 
and uh, it's dismissed. And this is the summer of 2008 at this point, you know, a year later. And I had, you know, started, you know, like I said, I'd heard about the Congressman Ron Paul and he was running for president, I think. And, you know, I was, had gotten very interested in the war on drugs and the prison industrial complex, you could say, and, mm-hmm. and just the you know, private prison industry. And, uh, and uh, a lot of what he said makes sense. And um, I was like, yeah, I don't need to learn more about this. I watched a few documentaries about the war on drugs, trying to get some more history about it. And, you know, things I didn't understand even know about that were going on in this country. I mean, you know, grow, grew up raised with a single dad, only child close to the OU campus. I mean, you know, I had some experience, but I didn't know sure. really what was going on in the world. And, and uh, so... Um, I had thought, you know, Hillary Clinton's running for president. You know, she's Bill's wife, first lady. She's been a senator. She's probably going to be elected president, right? She, her, Bill came to Norman, spoke at OU. I went to that. I was like, oh, yeah, the former president's coming to Norman. Yeah, I'll go check that out. I'd never seen a president before. Oh, yeah. And he was the president for most of my childhood or, mm-hmm. you know, my elementary and middle school years. So I was like, yeah, yeah, check that out. And I thought, yeah, this lady's going to get elected, right? She's going to be the next president. And then summer, though. And a lot of people wouldn't understand how Ron Paul would lead me to to uh, voting for this person, but I started hearing about this young, young for president uh, United States senator that was running for the Democratic nominee, and I didn't vote in the primary at all, and he had won the primary already, and he had beaten Hillary, and I was like, this Senator Barack Obama, who's this guy? Yeah. I never heard, you know, I'm a novice, and he was talking about you know, we need to change things. How things are are not good enough. And criminal justice and private prisons and putting people in jail for all this stuff. And pot, we, we got to change things. And I thought, man, I've never felt inspired to vote for anybody before. And, I sure uh, do now. Yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah. yeah, things do need to change. And based on this experience I just went through, it's not just. And, you know, I don't think I can support the death penalty anymore because... If someone like me can just get wrapped up and have to go through a year-long ordeal, the you know the police lied about me. I I was dressed nice, and I looked just like a you know middle. I looked just like a middle-class white you know kid, twenty-three-year-old from OU, you know, mm-hmm. uh, college kid, and I still had this whole ordeal I had to go through. And um, I wasn't rich, very low income, worked at a restaurant, like I said, but still. You know, um, if that could happen to me for nothing, it could happen to anybody. Yeah. And in fact, it, it guarantee it is happening to people right yeah. now, innocent people. And this guy, this Obama came in and, you know, had a lot of things to say that made me feel inspired that, okay, we need some leadership that recognizes these are actual problems. And he did, you know, and, you know, lots of debate about his ability to accomplish sure. yeah. changing those things yeah. and you know, all that. But at that time, he made me feel like he recognizes what the problems are and he is making me feel like he might be able to do something about it. I think I can definitely see the, the jump from yeah. Ron Paul. To yeah. That. Cause I mean, I myself even kind of, I mean, I remember that time and I mean, someone like Ron Paul, I know he's libertarian and you yeah. can say, yeah. oh, well, the, these ideas don't work or do work or whatever, but the, that type of person is always pointing yeah. out something yeah. that's wrong yeah. or we shouldn't keep doing, you know, whether they're right on the other political spe- political spectrum or the left or whatever. Yeah. You know? So they can be, they're just, they're still 
kind of like you were saying with Barack Obama, like, you know, the status quo is not working. Yeah. To a degree. Yeah. How can we change and or fix it? At that point, too, in my life, I had been involved in this, uh, from about January 2008, um, is when I moved into it, but it was kind of a cooperative house here in Norman. It was... It was this big old sorority house near Campus Corner over on Dean's Row, formerly DeBar, uh, is what its name was at the time, but we've sure. changed it to Dean's Row now. Uh, but it was an old sorority house. It had 14 bedrooms in it, 30 rooms total. Uh, we called it Universe City, and we, uh, you know, it had a big kitchen in it. We had yeah. shows, bands played there. We had a big art room that had free supplies that people would come in and use. There was a lending library, free internet, people would come in. And it had this big basement, and so some of us lived in the house. Some of the rooms were rented out of studio space to art artists or whatnot. We did that for two years, and that's one of the things that really helped me build up a notoriety and um, you know familiarity in the community, in the arts, music community, political people. activism. Yeah. yeah. So being a part of Universe City played a big role in how I got active and everything. And so uh, when that case, when that incident in Texas and going to court ended. Again, it was the summer of 2008. I was living in this cooperative near Campus Corner with a lot of politically active and like-minded folks. And I kind of started realizing more and more that, yeah, I'm not, you know, I had, I re-registered. I registered as Democrat, you know, um, and I started feeling like, yeah, I'm definitely more liberal about a lot of these issues, especially. And I started really discovering that on social issues, I was like, yeah. Same sex, people should be, the government shouldn't be telling people they can't be together. That's not right. And we shouldn't be people putting people in prison, especially for profit. That should be against the law. There should be no profit in prison. The government's job is not to make profit on things. And that's why the government does things like operate prison. It's, there should never be a financial incentive to lock anyone up, you know, or so take anything. Be, there should yeah. be no financial, yeah. financial incentive to take something from somebody or put them in jail. You know, it should it should cost us. It should cost us so much to put people in jail that we don't want to do it unless we have to do it. Yeah. Unless there's no choice. There should be no profit. Anybody involved should lose money. The government should lose money on it. It should be a cost of society, and we only do it sparingly when we have to. So I just started developing a lot of those feelings, and I started feeling like, you know, the wars were wrong. And I started really realizing what the motivations for those were. Wars were, and how that this was way before 9 11. This is this has been going on for a long time, and these issues and these problems and these interests that are involved. And, and I was like, it's wrong, and people are dying, and soldiers are dying for, for what you know. We got Saddam Hussein, or not, we hadn't at the time, but we've we conquered Iraq and Afghanistan. We've, we've yeah, we can't even find Saddam anymore, yeah. he's gone, you know. And it's just like, why are we still there? And it's expensive, and we don't have health care. Education yeah, is failing, and infrastructure is failing. And I just started seeing all this, and it helped being around some other people that were more experienced to help me realize it, what I already knew. But anyway, I, I voted for the first time that year in the presidential election, voted for Barack Obama, and I started voting in every election after that, like no matter what it was, a road bond for Norman or a dog catcher, whatever so it speak. is, yeah. I'm voting. Yeah, I'm voting. <laughs> and so spring of 2009, I helped my the mayor of Norman at the time run for um, – she wasn't running for re-election. I think my city council member was running for re-election. Mm -hmm. And I think it was – anyway – 
I started getting involved in it. I had been going to city council meetings for a while, for a couple of years. I've been watching it on TV since I was a kid. Because although I had knew nothing about politics and had no interest in it, I've always been very fascinated in city planning and infrastructure and architecture. I played a lot of SimCity growing up. Ask you yes, yeah, I got it for Christmas one year. Sure, yeah. And played That's a lot enough, of that. isn't it? Yes, uh, played a lot of that uh, growing up. Um, my, my dad got remarried when I was four years old to a woman named Jennifer, and she lived in Dallas. And she worked in the tallest building in downtown Dallas, uh, called the Green Building, because it. I think, yeah, it, yeah, I think it changes probably. colors now, but it used to just be green at nighttime. And so I thought that was so cool. There were no tall buildings like that in Oklahoma, yeah. you know, in Norman especially. So yeah. I'd never seen anything like that. And I just thought, that's really cool. The downtown, that's cool. And uh, and as a kid, my dad would take me to the diner here in Norman, which is down here on Main Street. And it's an old diner. It's been a diner for 100 years. It's really skinny and narrow. It's something you'd see in like New York City or a big, big city, something like that. So it's really cool. It's not like what you would generally see in a small town or you know, or even a town like Norman. And uh, so just as a kid, I always thought like Main Street was cool. It looked different than the rest of town. Something about it really, I thought was really cool. <laughs> yeah. And then tall buildings, I thought those were really cool too. And so uh, by the time I was in high school, I started taking all the architecture and drafting and design classes that Norman High offered. By the time I was a senior, I had taken all of them. So I went to Moore Norman Technology Center for a year to do computer drafting and design which wasn't as much fun as drawing, but um, I had a lot of background in that. And so I would watch city council meetings starting about middle school because, like I said before, my dad would go to bed early. I would stay up late. And I'd usually either watch the school channel or uh, the city council channel because they would just have replays. and They'd have, like, little slides of information, like, this street's closed. And, yeah. You know, or the school channel would have a thing. So I'd watch that. And I just, you'd see presentations for development projects or like a road project, blueprints. And I just thought that stuff was really cool. I'd be, I liked knowing that there was like a new business that was building, you know, they're building a new Taco Bell over there or something. You know, I just thought that was cool to know that stuff. And yeah. when I would tell people, they'd be like, how do you know that? I'd be like, well, I watch well, it. Actually, it's like inside information. Especially when you're like in sixth grade, <laughs> seventh yeah. grade. Yeah. Like, who yeah. knows who are you? <laughs> and a couple of the council members had like cool names. Like one was Kevin Pipes. And yeah. Richard Stowicki. <laughs> uh, Kevin Hopper, I think, was one of those. Yeah. yeah just <laughs> anyway. Uh, so uh, uh, I'd watch them. Started going when I was in high school. Uh one of the requirements of one of my classes senior year was to go to a city council meeting and take notes about it. So I'd never been before, but I'd been watching it for years. So I started going a little bit here and now. And then once I got involved in that, you know, co-op house, University at the beginning of 2008, that's when I started going to city council meetings regularly because I was like, you know, we're doing this like co-op deal here. We're trying to have a community, you know, house and we've got these shows, bands from all over the country, even, from Europe that were traveling across the United States would write us on MySpace and say, Hey, we're uh, such and such. We're passing through Oklahoma and there are very few DIY uh, venues in your state, but you're right in the middle of the country and we're on our way to Dallas or on our way to LA or wherever. Uh, but we found your place here and it says, you've got, you know, you can help us out. And we said, yeah, we've got this big old house. Uh, we would use the living room. At the beginning, it was the basement, but we moved it up to the up to the main floor living room so people wouldn't have to go down in the basement. It was just, you know, if something happened. Sure. So um, did that, 
And he said, yeah, we, uh, you know, we don't charge cover to get in because it's a house venue like this and we're not a business. You know, I was like, I go to all these council meetings and I'm trying to (laughs) do this right. And, but what we can do is, uh, you know, since you're not coming out of your way to come here, you're on your way somewhere else, guarantee you a place to stay for the night here at our house. Um, we're right next to this place, our campus corner. There's a convenience store across the street from us. There's several restaurants and other businesses around here. And we're just a few blocks from the downtown also. So there's lots of stuff around here for you. Um, any merchandise sales, any tips, contributions, all yours, 100%. So you've got a place to stay. You've got a bathroom. You've got other things around here. And, you know, if you can get – for them, it was like if they could get 20 bucks for a tank of gas – that paid awesome. for that. Yeah. That paid for that. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was our offer. We can help you out, but we can't. We can't collect a cover charge for it and guarantee you anything other than a roof. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and we'll cook. Play. There's food here. You can help yourself to anything you want. So, um, that was how we did that. We did it for two years. So I started going to council meetings all the time, so that I could be, you know, develop a relationship with local officials, with the police, even. Uh, the convenience store across the street, police would often park over there and go get coffee and whatever. And I would notice this one officer would always be over there. You know, he'd go over there and usually hang out there for about an hour. He would hang out and talk to the clerk in there, and sometimes he'd stand outside for a minute. And so I, I started going over there and introduced myself, and uh, we swapped cell phone numbers. And I'm like, yeah, I have this house over here, and we have shows, and it can be loud sometimes, so if there's ever any issue, you know, with that, just give me a call, and we'll make sure it gets taken care of, and that way you don't have to come out, and, you know, there's other things, I'm sure, <laughs> to deal with, and he's like, yeah, I definitely appreciate that, and um, he's, he, uh, his name is Marcus Smallwood, he is what I would describe as the example of how police officers everywhere should be, and if they were, I suspect there probably would be very little to know problems between community and police relations because he is just he's a retired navy guy he's uh wanted to be a patrol officer so he could be out there and you know he's the most polite calm guy i've never seen him put his hand on his gun he doesn't raise his voice to people unless they raise his to their theirs to his he always tries to make people feel calm so they don't you know you know it benefits about, yeah. <laughs> you know, or you know, and possibly risk his life. So, yeah. Anyway, so we developed a good relationship that way, and uh, and so, like I said, going to council meetings, I got to know the mayor and my council member very well. We had a big community block party in the summer of two thousand nine. We closed off the whole street at both ends. And police came and did a presentation about community policing. The mayor came, a bunch of neighbors came, and had a big art show. And, I think some of the rooms were uh, not rented out, so we let artists come in and, like, you can have this room and that can be your gallery and that'll be yours. And we'll have Show a big, off stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was awesome. It was great. We just opened up the whole house to the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, a few months later, um, unfortunately, a few days before Christmas, uh, fire marshal came and did an inspection and that night said, all right, I can give you guys two hours, clear out all your things and get out. So 11 people lived there. Uh, several students, the head chef at the Earth Deli or Cafe, Earth Grocery Store Deli, uh, myself, some others, um, lived there. They gave us two hours to get all of our stuff and get out. Six days before Christmas on a Friday night, so um, that was a big deal. We all went to the following council meeting and got up and spoke and were like, you know, 
there, you know, there's certain rules and stuff and whatever, but you know, to kick people out of their home with only two hours notice, it's winter time. It's a Friday night. It's six days before Christmas and, you know, so on and on, you know, this isn't right. And so, uh, because I, you know, had known the mayor and stuff and we were able to get some meetings with city staff and, and they couldn't show us where we had violated just sure. Now that, that's just the way it is. And mm-hmm. the, the fire marshal has a lot of authority, and if he says that it's not, then it's not. And yeah. It's just like no dealing with it. And we're you know we're in our early twenties. We're not going to be able to go hire an attorney to go sue the city or yeah, so, yeah. or even find out or anything. So anyway, I uh, you know a couple of us end up getting a house together, a small house somewhere else. Another guy and I tried it. We keep booking shows. We had months of shows booked in advance. And we keep doing it at some venues around and whatnot around Main Street. As long as we could, we eventually stopped doing it. It was just too much of a hassle to try to book shows without our own venue, especially not having a house. It's just a different setup than relying on a bar or a business to be open. Of course, yeah. And the biz- the bar started booking some shows without telling us, and then they'd show up at the same time and be like, you didn't just tell us. Just a bunch of confusion. It's just yeah. like, anyway, um, so, uh, you know, the mayor and my council member at the time both had to run for re-election that year in 2010. Um and, you know, they were both like, I know, you know, really sucks what happened. We're really sorry. We're just, you know, you know, help us make sure that type of thing doesn't happen again. You know, we're running again. And I really liked the mayor at the time and my council So it was no question I was going to help them out. So I knocked doors. I had never campaigned for a candidate. I'd never done anything. I knocked doors, did some stuff. They both got reelected. And then um, the summer of 2010, right after they both got reelected, uh, an older lady activist who I had worked with on some other, like this nonprofit radio station thing. She called me, she wrote me a message on Facebook and had said, Hey, Stephen, you know, you've been going to city council meetings all these years. You've been, you know, really involved. You know so much about the history of Norman. Your family's been in Norman for a really long time. Uh, you know, I don't think council member Cubberly is going to run for re election in Ward 7 next year. You should think about moving to Ward 7 and running for that seat. And if you do, I'll support you. We'll get others too. And I was like, well, okay. I uh, never really thought about running for city council. I'm pretty shy, introverted, never was on student council, never did anything like that, never had any vision of being the leader of, uh, which interestingly enough, I did play quarterback in high school, but I was not <laughs> I was not like Baker Mayfield, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. when it comes to uh, the presence on the field and the that leadership aspect. I was very quiet and that doesn't work very well for sure. playing football. But, uh, um, uh, so I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't really like even asking my dad for gas money in high school. Well, I don't think I could ask people for money to run for city council. That's, you know, um, but I'll think about it. Um, I'll get back to you. It's several months away, you know, um, city council elections in Norman are every spring. So this was the summer. So it was like, but a few months went by, and there was this controversial city council meeting where the city was voting on a, a LGBTQ History Month proclamation, just recognizing October was that month. There were a bunch of people that came out that night that were pretty hateful, very angry about it. And the Norman I grew up in, I had never seen that behavior before. I mean, I went to a pretty diverse elementary school in Norman where a lot of international kids go. I was surrounded by a lot of people different than me growing up. 
And, you know, I didn't really know about the other, the experiences that people may have had in Norman. But to me, I had not seen that side of, I was like, Norman's a college town. You know, everything seems to be pretty progressive. Sure, yeah. So to hear people get up to the podium and just pound their fists and be so angry and mad that the city was recognizing a history month, you know, for, you know, GLBTQ uh, people in our community, it just... I was kind of shocked, and then a week later, a kid not much younger than me, um, Norman kid, committed suicide, a, a gay kid. Um, his parents were both conservative at the time. His both, both his parents are very progressive now, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they'll ever vote for another Republican again. Um, but they, uh, that happened. It was, I mean, it was devastating. Of course. Um, and... I decided, well, Councilmember Coverly, he voted for the proclamation and then said, I'm, and by the way, I, I'm not going to be running for re-election next, next uh, spring. He had been on the council for 10 years. Then, so that's why Mary Francis was her name, had said to me, I don't think he's going to run for re-election next time, so you should think about it. So I, I had moved to Ward 7, um, you know, after university got shut down, some friends and I, we lived in a, we got a small house and lived there for a few months. But then when I got that message from her, I started looking for a place on my own, and I found a small apartment in Ward 7, and I registered to vote there and everything at that address, and then Councilmember Coberly announced he wasn't running. I thought, okay, I think I might do it. I think I might do it. <laughs> so I decided I did. I made an announcement to the paper. A few months went by. I had no money, no experience, had no idea what I was doing. I would just post stuff on Facebook and... I had a voter list of registered voters, and I would you know, try to write people on Facebook and say, hey, I'm running, contact students, all that stuff. On the day, last day of filing period, which is a three-day-long thing, uh, I was the only person that had filed for the seat. And at 4 o'clock, 5 p.m. being the deadline, two people went and filed. <laughs> so there ended up being three of us. Yeah. Again, no money, no experience. A lawyer filed a run against me, and this old lady uh, named Linda Lockett. She been in, she grew up in Norman. She was seventy something years old. She had owned several businesses. Her father was a very well known developer in the forties, fifties. Uh, she had been on the Chamber of Commerce. She helped get the same old Museum of Natural History here. Uh, but she was definitely politically on the very much more conservative side of things. And so, um, and uh, so, uh, and then the lawyer. I guess she was kind of a moderate. I don't know what. How to really describe that? She was not very nice, though. Yeah. And uh, so I'm 26 years old. I have no idea what I'm doing, and um, I have no money. Um, on election day, the older lady, Linda, she gets the most votes, but she doesn't get 50. percent So it's a good runoff. The lawyer and I tie. Oh. Wow. 89 votes each. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Linda got 164, and the lawyer and I tied with 89 votes each. So the official protocol for that had been 20-something years since that had happened in 30, maybe. It had been since the early 80s. Uh, was they have to send you an official certified letter in the mail. And then a week and a half later, you'll appear here at 9 a.m. at the election board, and we will draw one of your names out of the basket. So that's what we did. And they drew my name out of the basket. And <laughs> you can like, imagine right. the lawyer lady was not happy about that. There's actually a picture at the exact moment that shows me smiling and her like looking to the side, very upset. So I'm like, oh, okay, and now I'm in this runoff. And so the Ward 7 runoff is the only election that's going to be happening. I mean, all the other wards, 
every year four of the eight city council seats are up for election. Sure. Every three years the mayor is. So um, everything else has already been decided. So the only thing left is Ward 7 runoff. So only Ward 7 voters get to vote in it too. Yeah. And it's the lowest voting turnout ward in yeah. the city. Yeah. <laughs> so luckily the runoff ends up being on May 10th, and which is you know, a couple weeks after a normal music festival. Mm-hmm. So I go. I've always worked as part of the crew at NMF. Either doing video, sound, or uh, most recently, I usually am seeing one of the stages, introducing bands and thanking sponsors. Sure. But when I was filming it, I had this podium right in the middle of the main stage crowd that I would stand on. So I brought my signs and I taped them to the podium. And so the whole crowd, I saw Holman for Norman City Council on May 10th. So I don't know if they all live in Ward 7, but they're yeah. seeing it. Yeah. And, uh, so. Uh, in the runoff election, though, um, and actually ended up raising a bit of money so I could buy those signs from a person who did not know me in person, only knew me on Facebook. And he wrote me a message and said, hey, Stephen, uh, we don't know each other, but I uh, followed your post for a couple of years. Really appreciate uh, what you talk about. I really think you care a lot about Norman, so where can I send this check? He sent me $500. That, allowed, that was the maximum donation, too, you could give. And so that allowed me to buy signs. And because uh, I got into the runoff without even having signs or anything, I loaned <laughs> yeah. myself a hundred bucks and did some door hangers. And that was it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I raised a little bit of money, did signs. I ended up losing by twenty-one votes. So that was your, like you said, your first time. First time, yeah. two thousand eleven. I was twenty-six years old, and I, yeah, I was inspired partly to run by again my experiences with that arrest in Texas, with you know the city shutting down the house I lived in and kicking us all out on the street two hours and then you know not being able to actually show us where we where it says that that's the protocol you know and you know i said okay fine i'll just run and i'll be the one that makes the policy and you're gonna have to answer to me you know yeah sure yeah and i can tell you all those people that were involved except for the assistant deputy fire chief are no longer with the city (laughs) (laughs) and one of them i helped usher out the door myself so Anyway. So you're happy about that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, um, so that's really how I got involved. Two years later, I just kept going to council meetings. I had already been going. And a lot of times what happens in local elections is people that run do it on a whim. And if they don't win, you don't see them anymore. You yeah. don't see them at City Hall. But for me, I lost, and I lost barely. So I stayed involved. I kept coming to every meeting. I kept sitting in the front row where I always sat. Uh, Mayor Rosenthal, because I had helped her get reelected, because I had almost got elected myself and I was involved, uh, nominated me to be uh, appointed to a very important committee uh, that was tasked with overseeing a process to identify the, uh, basically it was the 2060 Strategic Water Supply Committee. So identifying where Norman's water resources are going to come from over the next 50 years or so. So very important. It was a two-year committee. And... um, um, I consider water to be the most precious resource next to air, I guess, on the planet. So, sure. um, um, uh, so a big deal, which really helped, you know, helped me make a case when I decided to run again. That, and when I lost in that runoff, I decided right then I'm running again. Yeah. I can't come that close, having no money, no experience, against someone who had tons of money and tons of experience, and not run again. You kind of saw what was possible. Yes. Yeah. I was like, if I just get a little bit of help and I raise a little bit of money, I bet I can win. And that's what I did. I got a friend of mine who was a data guru, uh, an environment, an environmental activist, very involved, 
a younger guy around my age at the time and then uh, Chris Applegate. And uh, it was really just T and I, and we had a few volunteers here and there, but he was very numbers and data driven. And he did GIS uh, mapping for Chesapeake Energy, so he was very good with maps and taking data and putting it in the right spot. And that's what he did, and we were able to be very efficient about how we knocked doors and where we knocked doors and who we knocked doors and things like that. And he he was almost spot on when he said, said I think we're going to need this many votes to win. And uh, he said, I think we're going to need 205, got 220. <laughs> so you did a little outpaced of there. Yeah, I mean, he was big time. And so, yeah, I ran against that incumbent lady who defeated me in 2011. I ran in 2013 and, and won. And uh, Mayor Rosenthal got reelected the same night. And two other people got elected defeating incumbents. So three incumbents lost that night. And the incumbent mayor, who we liked, got reelected. So it was a big deal. And I would say three more conservative council members got unelected and three way more progressive candidates, including myself, got elected. And that had never happened in Norman before. I think that was part of, you know, especially with you getting elected. Yeah. Being so young and yes. so social media and stuff. Yeah. That was, it was a part of that, too. Yeah. And my got second, got yeah. everyone's attention. And my second time around, I did raise a bit more money. I raised around $3,000, and I spent about two. But my opponent, she raised almost twenty and spent about fifteen. Wow. So I didn't even spend all of what I raised, but... We spent it very efficiently and effectively, and with social media and the fact that I was already well known, uh, that's how I was able to win by 28 votes in a runoff in the third. Not in a runoff. When I got elected, it was right yeah, outright. Yeah. But in the third largest city in the state of Oklahoma, you know, uh, I got elected, and then um, two years later, I started working at Friendly Market, and uh, all those charges happened in 2015. Um, the first trial for the friendly market happened in the fall of 2016. Um, and that's because, as I mentioned before, after Robert and I got charged, it was just he and I, we got charged and we restocked the store and all that stuff. Right. Well, um, on December 20th, the police came back because they had seen that newspaper article with Cody on the front holding a paper saying friendly market restocks. They came back with another search warrant. Sure. All the the same thing. Yeah. I remember that morning I was going to, going to the store and I was calling and Max wasn't answering the phone and I was like, okay. So I got to the store and saw a white paper take the door and I was like, oh, kidding And me. how long was this? Was this from the first raid? Three weeks. Three weeks? So it wasn't very long at nope. all. three weeks. We didn't restock the second time. Yeah. Um, and I think January maybe we had our first hearing. It was just like a preliminary evidentiary hearing. Sure. Uh, it was and uh, January, uh, we get a call, our attorneys get a call from a, a group out of Washington, D.C. called the DKT Liberty Project. Their primary objective as a nonprofit is to help people defend themselves against the government, specifically on issues of civil asset forfeiture. So they had read this story of a city council member charged with drug-related felonies and civil asset forfeiture and how I was opposed to civil asset forfeiture. And Maybe the police had raided my store because of that, you know, that type of thing. I don't know that that is why they did it, but that it's is out a, there. That's a narrative. And like, yeah. yeah, sure, maybe. And so they contact our attorneys and they say, "Hey, we've already our board's already voted, and we uh, will cover all legal expenses related to this case. We think it's a really big deal." So we're like, "Awesome, we can afford to defend ourselves." Yeah, so I didn't know what I was going to do. 
Yeah. Like the owner, Robert, he could afford to defend himself. Yeah. But as far as like an employee at the store, unless he just wanted to pay for me too, which I don't know if he could, but it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't afford a 15 grand retainer. Yeah. For Wagner and Bunch. They're great attorneys. I'd love to have them. It's expensive. Yeah. And so this was like a savior coming in this group. And that throws a major kink in the strategy of the police and the district attorney. They're not used to opposition people with unlimited <laughs> funds coming in yeah. on an issue like this. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, to unfortunately, a lot of the people that are that have been in ownership of businesses that you know sell these types of items haven't had the cleanest record. Yeah, and you know, Robert is like I said in his sixties, never even, never even had a traffic ticket in his life. He's got six grandkids. He's owned a small business for twenty five years. He goes to church. He does yoga. He's vegan. <laughs> I mean, mark it off. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to be able to get anything on him. And uh, and so they weren't used to this. They were like, okay, now we've got a defendant here who's squeaky clean. The other defendant is a popular city council. Uh, and at this point, I was already in my second term. I had been reelected in February 2015. So yeah. before I started working at Friendly Market, I had just started my second term. So... Um, and so, and now they've got a nonprofit from out of state paying all their legal fees. And the papers are already running things on this. The public's already speaking out on social media, being like, what is this? And a few months go by. And on March 8th, so raid happened December 1st, December 20th. Charges were filed against Robert and I December 10th. It's March 8th. And, uh, we didn't even know it, but they filed, well, I should say, March 6th, Robert and I declined their pleading offer. If you guys will agree to this, you know, we'll drop these charges, we'll have probation for this, supervised probation, drug court, psychological evaluations, fines and fees. Charges will be dropped, though, against you? Certain charges. Yeah, Certain charges will be dropped, but you're going to have five years probation. You're going to do this. Jump through all these hoops. Yes, okay. and we both thought that was completely ridiculous. Yeah. There are no drugs involved in this. Why would I have to go to drug court? Why would I need a psychological evaluation? Like, And it's just, is no, so absolutely it's, not. It's so five years, five years. Yeah, so they were kind of wanting to back out of it, but at the same time still. Made a very uh, piss poor effort. Yeah. And so we, without hesitation, rejected that deal. And our attorneys, Brecken and Blake, Wagner and Lynch, out of McAllister, I mentioned we hired them partly because of that case in McAllister and because we were familiar with them, but also because they were not local attorneys. And some people would say, well, wouldn't you want like attorneys who, you know, are familiar with the, you know, the judges and the DA and, you know, friends with them maybe? And he's like, well, yes, if you are wanting to get a deal. If you want a plea deal, you don't want to go to trial, you just want it to be over with. Then yes, if your attorney plays golf with the DA and the police, that could probably be good. Yeah. But if you need to go to trial and you need to keep yourself out of prison, mm-hmm. you do not want an attorney who is friends with anybody up here. You do not want a friend or attorney whose kids go to school with the DA's kids. You don't want that yeah. because they are not going to be willing to do whatever it takes to get you out of that situation because they're going to have to work with. Yeah. And their kids gonna go to school. Sure, they might be friends. Yeah, they might be friends. 
So we hired Breck and Blake because they were from Southeast Oklahoma. They were trained trial attorneys. They weren't litigators, trained trial attorneys. They had not only their law degrees, but they also had training from a trial lawyer's college, which is, I think, in Montana or Wyoming. Um, but it was their specialty, criminal defense. We're the best, we're the experts. And they're just a small law firm, probably, I think, four or five people work in their office. They have another smaller office in Wilburton, which is even smaller than McAllister. And they both drive pickup trucks. They don't wear nice suits. Uh, I mean, they're, they're don't have Rolexes. They're, they're just yeah, they're small business down to earth, you know, mm-hmm. guys. And so very relatable. And uh, and they are not very friendly to the DA and the police. And they don't like it. They're not used to it. They don't like it. And when we deny, decline their plea deal offer really pissed them off. So within 48 hours after we declined their deal, charges were filed. Well, additional charges were filed against Robert for the second raid, even though it's been four months. Yeah. And new charges are filed against Clerk Max Walters and Clerk Cody Franklin. One count misdemeanor paraphernalia possession charge each. Were any of these clerks present at any of the raids? Max was the second one. Okay. Cody was not. But Cody was on the page, front page of the paper holding a pipe. So just from, from that alone? Yes. And me, I got the exact same. When Robert and I were charged, it was because my business card said general manager on it. And so I got the same charges as Robert at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. They just treated me as though I was the owner. And a lot of newspaper and a lot of media sources printed that I was the owner. I guess that just sounded yeah. better or that yeah. was, you know, whatever. They just kind of went in. So I've spent years explaining that I'm not an owner of friendly market. I'm still not an yeah, owner of yeah, friendly yeah. market. But um, um, uh, it seemed interesting, uh, not coincidental, that they filed charges uh, within 48 hours of us declining their deal, even though it had been four months. Had sure. gone by at this point almost three. Oh, it had been almost four months. And anyway... Um, uh, they actually go to Max's parents' house on a Saturday morning with a warrant and try to arrest him. Max is our youngest employee. He's 20, 21 at the time. And Max has long hair. You've seen him walk back here a couple times. He yeah. has long hair. Kind of looks like a skater kid, maybe, at the time. And, they, and so um, we believe what their strategy was going to be was they were going to go arrest him on a Saturday morning at his parents' house. And they were going to keep him in the county jail all weekend long. Press on him. Yeah, and they were going to press on him and try to get him to agree to a deal or to say something about Robert or me or whatever. And uh, thankfully, Max was not home that morning. So they were not able to get him. And Brecken and Blake were able to arrange, we'll have him appear on Monday morning, courthouse, and at 8 a.m. We'll do the whole same thing. Same thing with Cody. We'll have him appear too. And so that just kicked off the whole thing um and you know by this point the media is really involved even more so now because now there's two more defendants and there's more charges and we've declined their deal we're headed to trial looks like we have a preliminary hearing where a judge determines that there is enough evidence to go forward with a trial and our attorneys told us they said you know it's a 95 percent 
chance it will be bound over for trial. It's very rare that the judge will find there's not enough evidence. And they did say at this point in the proceedings, if the judge finds there's not enough evidence to go forward and he dismisses the case, then, then you can have legal recourse to sue for loss of business and reputation. So, so. But if the judge rules that there's enough evidence to bind you over for trial, then the police and the prosecution will now be immune towards loss of business or because a judge has determined that their actions are justified, okay. at least to this point. Yeah. So that's what kicks it off, a string of hearings to set dates and whatever, and goes back and forth for yeah. months. October 2016, we have the first trial for Max. It's a three-day-long trial. He's got one count, misdemeanor paraphernalia possession, unheard of to go to trial over a misdemeanor. Yeah. Never happens. Yeah. Not even on record of it happening in Cleveland County before. And um, we present no witnesses, no evidence. The prosecution presents five witnesses, all of which are police officers. One is a, one or two are DEA agents. Um, gosh, this one is a guy named Van Gerb, real slimy, just ugh. ugh. Gives you a bad feeling. Yeah. yeah. Just, ah, ugh. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, he, you know, they testify against Max. They got Max on video, whatever. And Max, there was one thing that they almost got him on, but he didn't, thankfully. But, you know, this D agent on video is talking about, yeah, talking to Max undercover, trying to get a sale, make a sale. And he's like, yeah, I'm looking for a present for my, my brother-in-law up in Alamosa. Yeah, yeah, pretty friendly up there. And I think he'll like it a lot. You know, I think he'll like this pipe a lot. You know, up there in Alamosa. I guess, <laughs> I didn't know this at the time, but Alamosa is a town in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And apparently it's on a highway and lots of the, uh, you know, marijuana being legal. And I guess marijuana and that's found in Oklahoma sometimes comes from there. I'm not sure. Sure. But that's where he was going with it. You know, trying to be like, yeah, I'm trying to get a gift from my buddy in Alamosa, Colorado, you know. It's really cool up there. The law is really cool up there, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think he said some stuff about, yeah, we did some crazy stuff back then. And Max said, yeah, they did do some crazy stuff. And that almost got him. That was it? Yep. Because <laughs> stuff means marijuana. Yeah. Crap. Crazy stuff. And this came with our, our attorneys did a really humorous job of portraying this in trials. They're like, yeah, stuff. Crap. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, like one of the civil asset forfeiture things we looked at when we did our episode was... A person was driving to California through Canadian County because that's up. Yeah, absolutely. He had money on him. He had a lot of money on him. He was going to California. Yeah. Well, you know what they do in California? Things yeah. we don't like. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so that was enough to take yeah, all that money. Yeah, that's all it takes. That's yeah. all it takes is a suspicion. We suspect. Opinions. Opinion. Really. Yeah, we think so. And uh, so um, the judge in that case is Judge Steve Stice here in Cleveland County. He's very, what I would describe, very fair. He's a moderate Republican, I would bet. He's a former defense attorney. He knows what it's like to be on the other side. Mm -hmm. He hasn't always got along with the DA very much. They've clashed a bit. Um, and so he's fair, we think. Um, doesn't sustain a lot of our objections. Sustains more of theirs than ours, we think. You know, allows some more stuff on their side. But anyway, a three-day trial. Um, the jury deliberates for a few hours, three, four hours or so, five maybe. And they keep coming back. They can't agree. Can't agree to it on a verdict. Can't agree. They keep coming back. He sends them back. Finally, he's like, okay. If you're standing for sure, foreman of the jury, you cannot, you're stating you cannot come to an agreement. Okay. 
Well, I'm declaring a mistrial. And so they declare a mistrial in Max's case. Four of the six jurors stay in the hallway and talk to us afterwards and tell us, you know, basically it was five to one not guilty. There was no drugs involved. There's no drugs in yeah. the store. You didn't talk about marijuana. You know, it's not drug paraphernalia, just by mm. existing. But one juror didn't agree. That's um, all it takes. All it takes. And, but we thought Max was their slam dunk case, and that's why he did him first. Because they thought Max is their youngest employee. He wears his hair down. It's long. Yeah. You know, we can get this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and if we can get him, the others, you know, we'll get them too easily. But they didn't, and the next day they said, well, we're going to, we'll retry that case later. We're going to go forward with the other ones. We'll retry Max Walters at a later date. Because if it's a mistrial, the state has the right to retry it all over again. So a few months go by, and um, February's rolling around. It's time, you know, it's time for me to file for re-election, actually. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm under felony indictment right now. Uh, Could be better. If I get elected and then get found guilty, I have to step down. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, so I asked some people what they thought. The attorneys, of course, said, yeah, absolutely. You have to run for re-election. You can't not. You have to. And then all of my supporters, people, I mean, the community was so overwhelmingly supportive. People from all over the state, people from all over the country. But in Norman specifically, I mean, the community in Norman was so behind us. It was not even funny. And, uh, and the police were not used to that, of course. Greg Mashburn is not used to that. He's been a pretty popularly elected DA. Yeah. Nobody, nobody's even challenged him. Even after our trials were over, nobody ran against him no, last year. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, we're thinking, okay, we've had one trial, no conviction. Maybe they'll, you know, this has been going on for a year now. Maybe they'll let it go. And okay, I, can, I filed a run for re-election. A student at OU files to run against me. She actually agrees with me on a lot of stuff, but she wasn't sure if I was going to run or how legal stuff. She was very supportive of Friendly Market. She was kind of libertarian, so she thought it was all bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And so um, she's the first trans- openly transgender candidate to ever run for city council in Norman. She is a freshman at OU and lives in Walker Tower um, with you know hundreds of other students, thousands. And so I'm thinking, man... I'm under felony indictment. All this stuff is going on. Lowest voting district in the city. She might be able to beat me. (laughs) I I don't know if people want to vote for me based on these pending charges. Even if they think I'm not guilty, it's just the risk of... So, um, um, I was able actually to win outright. I won 79% of the vote uh, on... Well, I should mention first, because I... Tell it so long, I lose track of the timeline a little bit. But on February 3rd, February 1st, Cody goes on trial. Set facing the same charges as Max. One count, misdemeanor, paraphernalia, possession. Three-day trial, six jurors. We present no witnesses, no evidence. They present the same evidence, same witnesses, pretty much. These are drug paraphernalia. And uh, jury deliberates for 30 minutes or so. Not guilty. Talked to the jury foreman in the parking lot for over an hour afterwards. And he's like, God, you sh- there's got to be more to this story, right? Like, <laughs> their case was so bad. Like, there's got to be more, right? Yeah. There's got to be more. And I told him about it. I was like, no, this is what happened. And he was just unbelievable, unbelievable. And uh, 
So that happens. Not guilty. And we got that headline out there on the wall, in the frame. Um, so I'm feeling pretty good now. Like, all right, two trials, zero convictions, not guilty verdict on the second one. Two weeks later, I get reelected by 79% of the vote. That's, that's pretty significant. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, been more than landslide. <laughs> a week later, in the yearly uh, People's Choice Awards that the Norman Transcript does, where people get to vote on their best restaurants, sure, favorite, yeah. I get voted best elected official by the Norman Transcript here. So, re-elected by 79% of the vote. Voted best elected official. So, re-elected to a third term, best elected official, blah, blah, blah. So we're thinking, okay, they're going to drop this, right? This, they have to. This is ridiculous. Surely they know that they have no chance. Um, Especially that our attorneys know their strategy. Are you feeling a little better? Feeling pretty good. good. A few months go by. Um, End of April, it's looking like Okay, we're actually gonna have to go to trial. They're not they're not dropping it. And Robert and I are gonna have to go on trial sitting next to each other. Uh, all charges combined, twenty six charges, two a felony each, and um, twelve misdemeanors each for possession of drug paraphernalia. So um, six day trial, because with a felony you get six or twelve jurors actually. So a six day trial, fifteen witnesses testified for the state. We had one witness to testify that we brought on. Uh, we presented a few pieces of evidence. Um, uh, in the first two trials, they presented some evidence that they did not present in the third trial, I think because it was so stupid. But in the first two trials, they used some items. Some people may remember in the beginning of the podcast, I talked about the totality of the circumstances. And if you had pot leaf poster and high times magazines and so on and on. Well, at the friendly market, there was a piece of soap. It was in the shape of a hemp leaf. And it's called dope on a rope. They took that and they presented that as evidence. They took a high, not a high time, a Rolling Stone magazine out of the bathroom. It had an article in it about medical marijuana laws <laughs> in New York State called Andrew Cuomo's pot problem. And then they took a hat similar. Well, you guys won't be able to see it on audio, but Max right there is holding it. Similar to that. And on the bill of the hat underneath um, yeah right there was hemp leaf a brown yellow hemp leaf so not even green yeah. like a you yeah. know you know the, the bar of soap was at least green so I guess you can make sure it. but yeah. anyway they took those items they took a sticker that was on one of the showcases that said 420 science which is a company that supplies cleaning products mm-hmm. anyway <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they took those things, presented them, and said, see, these all together show that Friendly Market was indeed promoting pipes to be used for marijuana. Their intent was illegal, no matter what they tell you. You know, pipe, water pipes, and none of that matters. They're clearly promoting the use of marijuana. Look, look at all this stuff. Well, they didn't use any of those things in the third trial, because clearly... The juries thought those were ridiculous. You know, it didn't work. Like, are you kidding me? A news, an article, in, okay, in, a, you went in a magazine delving for like it wasn't like it was was the was the magazine opened up to that page? I don't <laughs> even think so. <laughs> you um, know? Anyway, so they didn't use that stuff in the third trial, and um, uh, 
like I said, they put on 15 witnesses, a dozen police officers testified, the chief of police testified, two city attorneys testified, the city attorney who said, I could take the job, and then later said I couldn't, yeah, yeah, he yeah. testified. The city attorney who had looked up the ordinance to see if we had a local law against it and all that stuff, he had to testify. Was the city attorney, was he testifying for or against For the prosecution, for the against, prosecution. against us, yes. yes. Very nice. We only put on one witness, yeah, and so... Um, so yeah, all these people testified, and it became a big deal because right before the trial started, the day before the trial started, a detective who was involved in the case, the guy that stood out front and told Robert, we don't want your element in town, got promoted to captain. It was in the papers, Captain Riddle. Sure, yeah, great. And so I commented on Facebook, on the police department Facebook, saying, this is a disgrace. He is a menace to society <laughs> and should not be promoted when a highly controversial trial, which he was involved in, is about to start. Yeah. I mean, tone deaf. Yeah. Well, you can imagine his family and all the police officer families out there didn't appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, so they all got all up on sure. it. Sure. Yeah. And so they all started coming to the trials. Mm -hmm. They all like, packed in on their side. And when the chief of police testified, because I had said, Detective, Detective Captain Riddles needs to be fired. And if Chief Humphrey stands in the way, he needs to be fired too. And so when he testified, they all came to watch. Riddles did not end up testifying for mm -hmm. some reason. But Chief Humphrey did. And when he did, like half the police came. I don't know. Yeah. And that didn't go over good because Chief Humphrey was not a good witness for the state. And he had a serious outburst on the witness stand because he lost his cool while one of our attorneys was cross-examining him. He did not like having his authority questioned. And he did not like the tone of our attorney, Blake, and interrupted him to tell him so okay. in the middle of a question, which caused several jurors to do a gasp and like, whoa. So there's some power control. And the there. judge was like, that's enough. That's, yeah. you know, just <laughs> And so that didn't go over well. Um, they had one city attorney testify, the one who told me not to take the job and that it's all drug paraphernalia. Well, the other city attorney testified that, well, I don't know about the conversation that he had with Jeff Bryant, the other attorney, but I can tell you, in my legal opinion, we could not have told Councilmember Holman that all pipes are illegal uh, because I would have had to go to the friendly market, I would have had to look at every single one of them, and I would have had to apply the 12-step state law to it to determine whether it was drug work. So uh, we could not have told... You know, he didn't know what the testimony of the other attorney was. Sure. He just said it. We could not have told Councilmember Holman, Stephen, that his yeah. um, that it was illegal just by existing. We would have had to pretty thoroughly research that. So um, we did not do that. Um, and I don't. I never had any conversation with Councilmember Holman about whether he could work there or not. So, but basically, his his testimony about no, we didn't tell him those bikes are illegal contradicted what the other attorney said. And our attorney was able to run the, the primary attorney, the one who testified, saying, I told him not to take it. Uh, he's the, He was the head city attorney. He's no longer the city attorney mm -hmm. for the city. He fired him last year. Yeah. Um, but uh, he had he uh, he uh, didn't do very well on the witness stand either. And um, the day after I was charged, he sent out an email to all the city council and to the DA's office uh, saying how he had told me not to take the job and so on and on. But there was no record of any of that prior to charges being filed. So 
I should have gotten in writing from him that it was okay, but he never put in writing that he told me it wasn't, you know? So the last question our attorney asked him on the witness stand was he was like, he went over all that, and he's like, and you didn't file, you didn't send that till the day after Stephen was charged, right? You never put out anything before then. You knew Stephen worked there for three months prior to these raids, and you didn't say anything to anybody. But the day after he gets charged, you put out a memo to not only the council, but to the DA's office. Why did you do that? Why did you feel like you need to reach out to the DA's office? And he's like, ah, well, he's like, so, okay, so, one last question. So, are you familiar with the term CYA? And city attorney sits there for a second and then realizes and goes, yes, I am. CYA means cover your ass. <laughs> so, yeah, you sent that email the day after to cover your ass. Yeah. Because you knew. You're, he's going to be yeah. rolled up in this. Yeah. And so that didn't go well for the prosecution. The case was just terrible. And they actually, to our surprise, had brought, tried to bring in the case from 2007 in Texas, the one that had been dismissed for constitutional violation of rights and illegal search and seizure. They tried to bring that up in the case. And they actually brought a police officer that was there on that scene that night to testify against me. Wow. Twelve. Let's see, it was 2007. This was 20. This was May this, this is almost 10 years later. Yeah. This was nine years and 10 months later. And it wasn't the arresting officer. It was just an officer from a different department that had responded as backup that night and had didn't even interact with me. Yeah. He was just like, yeah. And he didn't even work for the same department anymore. He was now the chief of police in this small town where he was the only police officer. So he had to leave work for a day and have the county sheriff cover his town so he could drive to Oklahoma so he could testify for five minutes in my trial, nine and almost ten years after this incident that he wasn't even really a part of. But it was because there was a pipe involved. And they thought, see, Stephen knows that these pipes are used for marijuana because he was arrested for it in Texas in 2007. See? Yeah. Didn't go over well when the jury found out it was dismissed for a violation of constitutional rights and illegal search and seizure, as you can imagine. And, you know, that, that officer had nothing valuable to testify to. That's why he was only up there for five minutes. Yeah. I think our attorney asked him one question. He's like, What's the so uh, he was like, I think he, I think our attorney just like made a description of, of me. He's like, so, yeah. and he's like, and so do you think that's an accurate description of the defendant, Stephen Holman? And the guy goes, yeah, I think so. He's like, okay, no further questions. Yeah. That was it. And so it was absurd that they would even, how they could think that would be advantageous to them to bring that up. It was just like mind-boggling. And that was just indicative of their whole, whole, the whole thing. It seems like they're leaning very heavily on, you know, a lot of these people will just be like, ah, drugs, bad. Yep. You're bad. You used yep. them before. That's yep. bad too. Yeah. All bad. Yeah. That's, it, that's really you know, good. So you're going to present a case where it showed the police lied? Which, you know, I mean, you know, sadly, might have worked yeah, sure. at a certain time. Sure. Not that long ago. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And um, didn't work, thankfully. We put, a, uh, we put one witness on the stand. We put him on on the very last day of the trial. The trial started on a Monday morning, went the entire week. We broke for the weekend and came back that Monday morning to finish it. And because we were out on bail, we weren't in jails, you know. But if, you know, thinking about criminal justice, if we weren't, if we hadn't had that nonprofit, or if the owner Robert, you know, wasn't able to, you know, pay bail for us, you know, we would have spent a year and a half in jail waiting to go to trial, and we'd be in jail the whole time we're in trial. Thankfully, we're, we're had on bail. Don't spend a year and a half in jail. We're out. 
how can you, while you're in jail, yeah, work what, nothing against this? Yeah, yeah. What can you do? And then so you can't build public support for yourself Find if you're resources. in jail. You can't be on social media if you're in jail. Yeah. Find resources. Yeah, you're not working. You know, so, um, and um, we decide on the last day of the trial that we're going to put this witness on. And the trial had gone really well, actually. Our attorneys even were debating with us the night before at the hotel about whether they were going to put him on. Because they were like, you know, what's the game? It's yeah. gone really well. Yeah, it might be to. worse. Sure. And he was this interesting guy named Max Montrose uh, from Colorado. He's a science guy. He wears, he's got red hair. He wears red-rimmed glasses. <laughs> uh, very super smart. Like, too smart. And uh, maybe a little eccentric. Um, I don't know how our attorneys found this guy. Yeah. <laughs> they were looking for a glass expert or a smokable herbs expert who could testify that marijuana, first off, is not the only thing you can smoke out of a pipe. That's absurd. And also someone who could testify about why people would want to smoke out of a glass pipe over metal and wooden pipes. Because we didn't sell metal and wooden pipes. We only sold glass. And uh, so he, this guy, Max Montrose, they found him. They got him to come down here, and he agreed to testify. And what he does is he founded this thing called the Trichome Institute. He studies marijuana, the plant. He's an expert on it on a molecular level. Yeah. And he basically educates government officials, businesses, anybody on what is marijuana. Why do people use it? What is it made of? How is it made? What makes it work? Everything. Exactly, all that stuff. And then he also is what I would consider an expert on pipes or smoking devices. And he was going to testify about how glass pipes are the safest and cleanest device to smoke any substance out of. Because glass is non-porous, so you can easily clean it out where you won't have bacterial growth. Where wooden pipes, you can have mold and mildew grow inside the pores of the wood. You can't get that out. you know. And... Um, Metal pipes are often made of aluminum and off-gas harmful things if you breathe it in when they're heated, and glass doesn't do that. So we said glass pipes are the cleanest and safest device to smoke any substance out of. And there's all these legal herbs, legal in all 50 states, that have this long, thousands of years, historic use for all these medicinal purposes. And I use this one and this one and this one. You know, we're thinking, do we even need to put this guy on? What benefit? Will the jury think he's a smartass? You know, and we don't, he's from Colorado, so they kind of had to coach him down a little bit. They didn't want him to make the police look stupid. Yeah. Or like respond, because he had some like quips that he would sometimes yeah, yeah. throw in a line. He'd be like, ah, like, <laughs> it's oh, funny. No. But <laughs> yeah. We know this now. is ridiculous. We know this is absurd from where you're coming yeah. from. But here, this is yeah. what we're dealing with. So, um, so we decide, yeah, we're going to put him on. And uh, he comes on the last day of the trial. Um, he's the last witness. Um, the prosecution, you know, questions him, mainly just like, you know, questioning his credentials, like what makes you an expert? What's your degree in sociology? How does that make you an expert in pipes? Do you smoke marijuana? And this is what really threw him for a curve. Was like, he said, yeah, absolutely, every day. Because I'm in Colorado when it's legal. Usually they can get people twisted around that because you say no, they're like, oh, so you never have? Yeah, or, yeah, oh, you've never this or that? And then he's like, what? So, but he's like, yeah, yeah, I do every day. And the prosecutor's almost like stopped right there. You just like. 
This guy is like a hotshot DA, too. He's not the district attorney, Greg Mashburn. He's his top assistant. His name is John. ADA, yeah, ADA. His name is John Peavy House. And he's like narcotics prosecutor of the year, state line. He's like hotshot. Doesn't lose. Bald head, goatee, glasses. His head gets beat red when he gets mad. Anyway. Um, and he's extremely boring. He talks a lot. He talks for hours sometimes. And just and he has this thing, he checks it off. He just goes down and he checks it. And he's just his tone never changes. It's the exact same thing. It's we like hope a he never does a podcast. <laughs> it's, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Everybody will have to turn off that one. I'm sorry. Um, um, so the jurors didn't like him at all. He was a complete turnoff. They loved our attorneys. One of our attorneys is like, you know, he's quiet, tells a good story. The other attorney, Blake, is real good looking, charismatic, and you know, nice so they love our attorneys. They don't like the DAs at all. <laughs> and um, so the DA, he's trying to, you know, he asks questions of Max Montrose, goes back and forth, uh, whatever. And our attorneys, at, you get up there and ask him, have him testify about pipes, why glass is the best, why we would sell glass over other things, why it's not just for marijuana, why that's absurd, so on and on. And it goes good. It goes good. So no harm. Um, they have the owner of Cohiba Lounge, as you mentioned before, the pipes, tobacco, cigar store over on campus. They have the owner of that place come in and testify against us. And they do this because his store sells tobacco products but does not sell glass pipes. You know, So it's kind of like, hey, why do you need to do it? Yes. If he doesn't have to. So he's an expert. He started his business in the 70s. He's a tobacco expert. He's going to testify about why people don't smoke tobacco out of glass pipes. Uh, commonly. So he's an older guy, though. And, you know, he's never been on a witness stand. He's never been cross examined by trained trial attorneys. And so the fact they put him on the witness stand just kind of showed how inept they were. They, they, he had no business being on that witness stand. Yeah. And it was really neglectful for them to put him on there and subject him to a cross examination by expert trial attorneys that were going to twist him all over. Yeah. And they did. And try and turn him apart. And they yeah. did. And they did it very nicely. Sure. They didn't try to make him, you know. But it's their job. But know? they did. And they basically got him to admit on the witness stand, he doesn't sell glass pipes because years ago the police scared him. The police told him it was illegal. So that's why. Yeah. Not because you can't. Yeah. And our attorney, it's a lot. Our attorney Blake, was actually able to find out that they used to sell glass pipes. And a specific one that was a wooden pipe with a glass bulb on top that you could put brandy or whiskey in and it would filter your smoke through it and they stopped selling it because the police told them you can't sell glass pipes so that witness didn't go over well with them and he basically testified yeah I don't sell them because the police intimidated me (laughs) so kind of like these guys (laughs) so anyway that's the closing stuff closing arguments the prosecution their whole case is it's common sense come on look at these pipes we all know what this is for we all know. So the evidence is overwhelming, and you have to find them guilty. You have to. They have these build, like big boards and presentation. They're like, see, and this, and this. Yeah, yeah. All that common sense equals this. We took pictures of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's great. It's like a math Common equation. sense guided by something <laughs> equals yeah. justice. It was so stupid. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so 
jury court, uh, judge dismisses the jury to go deliberate. She dismisses the the courtroom, and they won't let us stay in the courthouse. Um, they make us go sit outside or go leave, whatever. Yeah, and we'll let you know. They'll call you when there's a verdict. So we, you know, we don't go anywhere though. We all just hang outside the front of the courthouse on the steps. And some media people come, and a bunch of friends come, and people drive by and honk and wave. We take a big picture in front of the steps, all of us, all our families and stuff there. And uh, we're all just waiting. Several hours go by, and you know, it's twenty-six combined charges, two felonies that they're looking at. They're trying to apply a twelve-step state process to each of those to determine whether we were in possession of drug paraphernalia and whether the money is from drug activity. And you got to get twelve people to agree. On each of them. Yeah. So it takes a long time. And, um, you know, hours go by. It gets dark. We're still there. About The court got dismissed about 3.30 in the afternoon. It's approaching about 8.45 at this point. You know, getting a little nervous. Just like, oh, I don't know what's going on. And um, finally, phone rings. Got a verdict. It's like, all right. They're not... Uh, no Mr. All here, I guess. So yeah. They got a verdict. We're either guilty or not guilty, I guess. So we go up there, march up back to the court. Top, it was on the top floor of the courthouse. We go all get in the elevator, go up there. Before we go in the courtroom, though, we um, all our family and friends are there. And, you know, our attorneys pull us aside and they say, look, you know, and Robert really didn't want to hear this at all. But I was more realistic. I was like, I really, I want to know what. All alternate, all scenarios are here, and what sure. could happen? Yeah. You know, Robert really wanted to believe we're not guilty, and I believed that, and I was confident. But yeah. it was just like I don't want to be surprised. Yeah. So they, you know, they pull aside and they said, "Look, you know, if you guys are found guilty, you are going to be taken into custody immediately. You know, and um, you are going to be there for a while. You know, we will file motions tomorrow um, to appeal, uh, but you know, it could be weeks, it could be months." Just so you're prepared. We'll do everything we can. Uh, but that's what will happen. We're not going to be able to get you out. There's no bail for this. Yeah. And, you know, this they'll be it. Yeah, this, this is it. And so, um, just so you guys know. So, before we go in the courtroom, I, like, take my phone, my wallet, my keys. I give them to my girlfriend. Um, Robert, all these grandkids are there. He gives his phone and his wallet to his wife. You know, hug everybody. And we go in. We all go in. The police are all sitting on one side. Detective Newell, who is the lead detective, the head witness for the prosecution, his wife and his daughter come. So they didn't like my comments about him in the paper either. So they're all there to watch. They're all yeah. there to see us get convicted and taken into custody and so they can you know, feel good about what they did. And um, we all sit down. The deputies come and stand over us. And that's when I really felt nervous, really, for the first time. Like, I thought... You know, here we are. This is it. All these, you know, it's a year and a half since this started, and now it might be over. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, I'm pretty confident we're not going to be convicted of those felony charges. That's so absurd and far out. No way. But there's 12 misdemeanor charges. The state did put on 15 witnesses. They spent all this time. All these jury, jurors were here for six days, missed work. You know, are they going to convict us of one of these? Just to, you know, say, well, you know, we got to do, do something here. Yeah. That's what I was afraid of. We we're going to get convicted of one of these. It may not have meant jail time, but it meant I don't have a job anymore. We're not getting our stuff back. We're not reopening Friendly Market, you know. Because um, after the second raid, when we lost, we got they took our stuff the second time. We didn't restock, and we were able to keep the store open for about another six months 
without pipes before we had to close it up. Mm -hmm. And once we realized this is going to go on for a lot longer, these court proceedings. So we closed the store up May 1st, 2016. Yeah. And um, put everything in storage under the assumption, yeah, we're going to win this. We're going to reopen. So we just put it all in storage. That's what we did. Closed the store May 1st, 2016. Reopened. Not reopened, but our trial started May 1st, 2017. A year later. Yeah, 2017, yeah. Um, a year later, exactly, is when our trial started. And um, so I'm thinking if we get found guilty of one of these charges, though, that's it. Like, if it's not the felony, I can still be on city council. It's a felony charge that would kick me off automatically. Um, but, yeah, misdemeanor is not going to be fun. Yeah. And so, anyway, and throughout that whole time when we had to close Friendly Market, Robert, man, I didn't have a job. Other than working at the daily sometimes, the city council. Robert basically, out of his own pocket, gave me $300 every two weeks so that I could have, you know, live. Yeah. At least, you know. And so uh, that was, you know, just thinking about all that. And we're going to have to keep doing this. What am I going to do? And so they all, the jurors all come in. The judge sits down. She gets the thing from the foreman. And uh, she starts reading, and she says, all right, uh, count one, defendant Steven Tyler Holman, a felony possession of concealment of drug proceeds. The jury finds the defendant not guilty. And that's just a huge sigh of relief right there. Just not guilty of the felony. Oh, thank you. And so now on to the other 12 charges. (laughs) And so uh, she reads it one by one, count two. Uh, possession of drug paraphernalia, a state statute, blah, 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 violation of the jury finds the defendant, Stephen Todd Holman, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Yeah. And then she gets down to the last one, and I'm thinking, okay, this is it. Like, I'm convicting this last <laughs> one. And uh, she says, you know, count, count 13, possession of drug paraphernalia, found the defendant, not guilty. And I'm just... I think I don't even know what I did. I don't even know what I did. <laughs> I wanted to look at them when they were reading, but I, I just, it was a, the adrenaline was too much. Sure, I don't yeah. even know what I was looking at. So I just looked over to Robert and uh, he looked back at me and just like a sigh of relief, grabbed his hand. And she started reading the verdict on his charges and count one felony, not guilty. Count two possession drug paraphernalia, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. All the way to count 13, which was actually count 26, if you looked at it all together. So Judge um, Schumacher, uh, she had read not guilty 26 consecutive times. And the police and their families and the district attorney all had to sit there and watch it. And it was it was even more uh, uh, meaningful because when we were walking into the courtroom, one of the detectives who was involved in the case looked at Robert and said, yeah, we're going to, or I think Robert looked at him and said, well, Robert's always very polite, very cultural. And the guy responded with something like, yeah, we'll see who's crying here in a few minutes or something like that. And so it was just like, (laughs) yeah. Um, Not guilty. Uh, Walked out of the courtroom free, walked outside, of the courthouse and there was a pretty big crowd waiting, um, cheers erupted, cameras, all that stuff. Yeah. Took my phone out, posted on Facebook, not guilty on all 13 counts. 
and uh, it's the most liked post I've ever had in 14 years of having a Facebook. Uh, I think almost 2,000 likes on that post. It was shared hundreds of times. I mean, it was a big deal, yes. And so, um, you know, celebratory. Went home that night. Couldn't sleep really, you know. Yeah. And then the yeah, next day, we were just, you know, of course, in the papers, not guilty. And just everybody's like, ah, congratulations. I made it. And DA quoted as saying, well, nothing's changed. Um, it's still drug paraphernalia, and uh, we're going to move forward with a with going to trial for uh, retrying Max Walters, and we are going to prosecute Robert Cox for the two remaining charges from that second raid. So nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And it was just like unbelievable, really. Yeah. So a month goes by. Um, ACLU of Oklahoma gets involved. They had been somewhat, you know, they had been supportive, but they hadn't really done like a big. Deal. And so they did, though, they did this big press release, and they basically had everybody that's got to sign up to ACLU in Oklahoma uh, send an, uh, click this, send an email to Greg Mashburn's office to drop charges immediately. You know, And that happened um, over a span of a weekend in that June, so a month after we had been found not guilty. And um, that Monday morning, he issued a statement saying, I'm dropping all remaining charges. And I'm returning the money. We are not returning the property, though. It's drug paraphernalia. The juries found the defendants did not possess it, but they did not determine that it wasn't drug paraphernalia. And it is, and we're not going to give it back. It would be illegal for us to give it back, in fact. So we're going to keep it, and we will destroy it. So based on that comment in the paper, I guess, the city attorney's office has to contact them and say, you can't destroy it until a court... Gives you, you know, permission to do yeah, that. Legal um, and so we have to go up here in court, uh, July fifth, I think it is. Uh, we got all our money back. We took a picture with the check and everything. We got the money back. It was only about five thousand dollars. So you know, uh, and that was part of the, the DA. Their whole thing was like, ah, oh, this isn't political motivated, or we didn't need money. My budget's one point or six million dollars a year. What do I need five thousand? But the thing about civil asset forfeiture, and many of you are, may know it, is that most civil asset forfeiture cases are under $10,000 because that's kind of the threshold where they believe if it's under $10,000, most people are not going to go hire an attorney to go get it back because it might cost you more in attorney's fees than I to get your money back. So they know that. So very deceiving for him to be like, oh, my budget's $6 million. What do I care about $5,000? It's, it's a ridiculous you know, yeah, but that's exactly how yeah. they get. It's the way of saving face. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, we have a hearing in Judge Dice's courtroom, who again had presided over the first trial. He was very familiar, and as I mentioned, was a former defense attorney himself, and what I would describe as a moderate Republican, uh, not a big fan of government overreach, that type of stuff. And so we had a hearing in there. The state argued that, you know, this is a civil matter now. The defendants were found not guilty of criminal charges. Um, and in civil asset forfeiture, it, the defendant has to prove that these items are not, you know, related to criminal activity. It's not our job to, to prove anything anymore. And we can't return this property. It is drug paraphernalia for this reason and this reason. And Judge Stice just, you know, went back and forth and he just said, look, we've had three trials, zero convictions. You know, I presided over the first trial, and 
We've already determined in this hearing today that the rightful owner of the property is undisputedly Robert Cox, right? And um, based on the evidence presented here, which is you have presented no evidence, the state presented no evidence. They just said it's drug paraphernalia. Yeah. They have to prove it's not. Yeah. And Judge Stein said, look, you've presented no evidence that says that these are drug paraphernalia. And according to the state law, I would have to bring every single pipe in this courtroom, and I would have to look at every single one of them individually and apply the 12-step state law to each one of them so to, the totality of to them. determine yeah. whether it's paraphernalia or not. And I'm not going to do that. And so what I'm doing is I'm not ruling on whether these are or are not drug paraphernalia. Uh, that is up for the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma or the state legislature to a clarify. Case or but it's not my job to clarify that here. All I'm here to determine is whose property is it, who does it belong to, and we've determined that the property belongs to Robert Cox. So I'm ordering that all property be returned to rightful owner Robert Cox. Case closed. So, it's not over. It's been two months since we were found not guilty. Uh, we don't have our stuff back yet. We got some money back. We don't have our property back. And we need that property back so we can reopen the store. Um, basically, Robert spent his entire life savings to open the store the first time. We didn't have 20 extra grand to go out and buy and restock the shelves. We had enough money. We could put a you know sign a lease, get the utilities going, and get open. But we couldn't spend a bunch of money on you know inventory restock. So we needed this stuff back. It was about 15 grand worth of product. We needed it back. And so we we're like, okay. Dice ordered him to give it back. Well, they have 10 days to appeal, so nothing can happen for 10 days. And District Attorney Greg Mashburn waits the full 10 days till 4.55 p.m. on a Friday, mm-hmm. on the 10th day or whatever, <laughs> and files an appeal, an emergency relief to the state Supreme Court. We need emergency relief. We cannot give this stuff back. It is drug paraphernalia. And if we give it back, we're going to be in the commission of a crime. And we're going to be putting drug paraphernalia back on the streets. The kids are going to get a hold of, so on and on. And Judge Stice is a derelict of his duty by not determining whether that was drug paraphernalia or not. He neglected to do his job, and we now need emergency relief. One, criticizing a judge for his job performance uh, not great. No. <laughs> uh, and so we have to wait another month. They schedule a hearing at the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma. We all go up there. We walk in. I've never been in the state Supreme Court building before. Walk in. In the lobby, rotunda, whatever, there is a, um, a giant replica of the peace pipe that's... Uh, on the state flag of Oklahoma. Yeah. The state flag of Oklahoma has a pipe on it to smoke herbs out. Sure. Right? Yeah. So there's a replica of that pipe, big one, uh, made out of aluminum or titanium, I don't know, metal, in the right when you walk in. So I see it and I think, oh, that's cool. I'll take a picture of it. So I'm taking a picture and a uh, photographer from the Oklahoma takes a picture of me taking a picture of that. Next day, that's on the front page. Sure. It's just kind of ironic that yeah. we're there for pipes. 
There's a giant pipe that, would, yeah. that might even fall under what paraphernalia is, according to the Norman Police Department, right here in the Supreme Court. So come on and get it. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Supreme Court hearing is in front of like a referee, not in front of the actual uh, people, uh, justices. So our, it's behind closed doors with the attorneys. We're not in there. We're just we're sitting outside. They're in there for like an hour and a half. They come back out. They're like, all right, they, uh, they'll have a decision on uh, around September 9th, 10th for us. So just got to wait another month. So we're like, okay. So we wait. Finally, we get the, uh, it was, I think it was September 10th, they uh, issue an order, a unanimous decision upholding the lower court ruling, return all property to the rightful owner, Robert Cox, Stephen Holman. Max Walters, Friendly Market, Eek, whatever. And uh, we thought they might take the case, actually. We were concerned because our attorneys at one point did argue in one of the trials, and all the trials, actually, that the state law, the 12-step thing, was unconstitutionally vague. Law enforcement can't agree on what the interpretation is. Sure. There's no way any individual could possibly interpret what all of that is. And, you know, there's just too much leeway here. It's not properly defined unconstitutionally defined. And so we thought, well, the Supreme Court might take this because the legislature clearly didn't define it very well. There's this legal like gray area. There seems to be some problems anyway. So we thought, they might take this, and that could take a year. Yeah. Yeah. So, gosh, the idea of being closed for another year. We've been found not guilty. We've Meanwhile, got our, our money life back. is just little, yeah. whittling yeah. away. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, so no, they issue unanimous unanimous ruling upholding the lower court ruling to get our to get our stuff back. So attorneys say, you know, it's going to take a while, pro, you know, process all the paperwork, get everything signed. So you know, go start looking for space. And I had been pretty adamant before we even closed the original store that if we had a chance to move or reopen or open another store, that it should be uh, close to Main Street in downtown Norman, as close as we could get, maybe even Campus Corner, but in a walkable area that people can ride their bike to, that's close to a neighborhood, you know, maybe historic building, but specifically Main Street so we can be part of the Norman Music Festival, Second Friday Art Walk, you know, other events that go on. So, um, um, you know, do that and we'll wait until we get these orders signed. We'll get your stuff back. So we started doing that. The owner's son, Wes, and I just started driving around town looking for any any for rent sign in any storefront. We would call it. Some of them were like, yeah, we don't really want to have a pipe store or anything yet. Yeah, we don't really yeah. want to do that. We're, you know, skeptical. But we found this spot. Um, I was real familiar with this building. This building had been redone about six years prior by a really prominent local architect named Brent Swift. Um, it's a historical building, Art Deco-style architecture from the 1930s. Um, it was originally or historically a grocery store that my grandparents actually used to shop at when my dad was great neighborhood. I used yeah. to live a block back. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. dad grew yeah. up just a few blocks from here. Uh, Porter, the street out here, is uh, a very busy street and is two blocks south of Main Street. And Porter was the original interstate through Norman. So before I thirty five existed, seventy seven, I guess, right? Highway yeah. seventy seven. So if you wanted to go from OKC to Dallas, you would have had to drive right past here. Mm -hmm. You know, so. It, you know, we have the interstate now, but uh, but it's still a very busy street. Two blocks from Main Street, about five blocks from campus. Really great. Um, and actually, when we called about it, the rent was almost a thousand dollars cheaper than the generic 
recently newish strip mall that we were in on Constitution. So I was like, wow, a historic building that's way oh, yeah. cooler. <laughs> you know, it's got high vaulted yeah, ceilings yeah. and the rafters, all that stuff. It's just like, so yeah, we signed the lease. Um, we told the people, we said, yeah, we just went through this big case. We won at the Supreme Court. We're about to get all of our stuff back. We're going to reopen our, you know, our store. We're going to sell pipes. We're going to sell CBD and Kratom and whatever else. And, yeah, because there's no medical then. Yeah. Right. The yeah, is, talk about it had yeah, been, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, October 10th, um, 2017, uh, Judge Stice signs the order. We go down there and get it. We then, uh, the attorneys and we go down to the police department and back up the truck and load up about 20-something boxes marked Norman Police Department, drug paraphernalia, evidence, friendly market. Yeah. Load it all up. I like bring, the pictures from that, too. Yeah. <laughs> brought it back down here to the storefront. Um, storefront was empty, so we just laid it all out on the floor. Yeah. Went through all of it and um, identified what items were actually used in the trials as evidence. Uh, they used about 60 of the 1,000 items they had confiscated, and they had stickers on them that said, uh, states exhibit number one, number two, sure, number yeah. 60. And so we took those items, put them separately in a display case, uh, we, which evolved into a kind of a museum historical showcase with all of them in there. And then we've got the framed newspaper articles, not guilty, DA drops charges, Supreme Court yeah. rules. You know, uh, I'll have to take it. some pictures of Yeah, that. absolutely. Please do. Um, so we identified those items. We took the rest of the items and we said, okay, these weren't used as evidence, but they were confiscated. They were in police custody. And um, uh, so how can we signify what these are? since we're putting them in the shelves for sale. And so what we did was we took like blank orange, like price gun stickers and we just put a blank orange sticker on all of them. Mm -hmm. And then we filled the shelves back up with them. And then when people, when we, we reopened on October, Saturday, October 21st, 2017, we reopened and, uh, you know, showcased them as saying all these pieces were not used as evidence, but they were in police custody for two years. And this is what, how we have reopened our store. I think there is one of them left. Yeah, so almost two years later, we've almost sold all of those. But the actual evidence pieces are still in their own special showcase on display here at the uh, Norman Friendly Market. Some of them, the biggest pipe that was taken, a very large, uh, well, I have my medical card now, so a very large bong, uh, <laughs> uh, is on display at the Wagner and Lynch Law Firm in McAllister, um, Brecken, our attorney, had to wave it around several times. He was threatened with arrest for waving it around in the courtroom for possession of drug paraphernalia. <laughs> that didn't go over well with the judge. but uh, uh, So he wanted to have that on display in their offices. They're very proud of it. So, And if you ever, ever have a legal problem in the state of Oklahoma, Call Wagner up. and Lynch are the absolute best uh, attorneys in the whole state. Like I said, uh, I didn't mention that Robert and I – even though there were no drugs involved in this case, um, based on the number of charges we were facing, if we had been given the maximum sentence and been found guilty, it was 35 years in prison. Yeah. Which is twice the For sentence. That is twice the sentence that uh, former state senator Ralph Shorty got for being found in a hotel room with an underage boy recently. Yeah. So just think about that. 
uh, working in a store that sells pipes, no, 35 no. years in prison. Mm-hmm. If you ever wonder why Oklahoma has the largest prison population in the whole world, that's exactly why. Yeah. So thankfully, we had jurors that were uh, smarter than that, and we had great attorneys. The public was so supportive of us. And when we reopened, it's been you know great ever since. And interestingly enough, we reopened October of 2017, and then medical marijuana becomes legal in June of 2018, just you know, less than a year later. And then in November 2018, we uh, opened our second store in the village, in, you know, North OKC in the town of the village, technically, sure. um, on Hefner Road in Penn. And um, on January 1st, 2019 is when we officially began the dispensary section of Friendly Market. So Friendly Market, I would just be clear, is not a dispensary. We are a retail store that has a dispensary section in it, but is actually a legally separate entity. But we wanted to make sure that people uh, that don't have a card and that of all ages could still come in our store and shop for things like CBD and Kratom and T-shirts and pipes. Um, so you got to have a medical card to come to the dispensary section and to purchase from it. But anybody and all people are welcome uh, to come inside the friendly market. And so um, it's a lot has changed. A lot has happened in just the last three or four years. Hopefully we won't have to talk about this stuff in the past. Anymore. Yeah, sure yeah. It'll, it'll hopefully story. be hard to believe. You have know? you told that story just so many times? You're like, is this the last time? Yet? Yes, I have told <laughs> you know? this story so many times. We've even thought that maybe we should put like one of those museum uh, like visual displays up where like when you walk up to it, just the, the voice comes over and says, welcome, let me tell you this story. Back and in just like, 2015. Yeah. Uh, because it does happen a lot throughout the days. You know, people come in and they'll be, you know, we'll help them out with something and they'll be standing there looking and they're like, oh, what's all this about? Or they're like, yeah, I remember that. What? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about that. Or they'll bring their friends in. Um, the other day, yeah. a guy, two guys from Georgia came in who were friends with our attorneys. They're both attorneys in Georgia. Okay, and they yeah. went to the trial lawyers college with them and mm-hmm. had actually were familiar with our case and had done sure, some like yeah. uh, rounds on it and stuff. And uh, they came, they were just coming to Oklahoma, through Oklahoma. Um, and so he's like, yeah, we got to stop in Norman. I got to show you this friendly market store because we helped them. You know, so success. people come by and be like, yeah, look at this. Sure, we gotta, I had to bring my buddy in and show him this yeah. thing. And so, uh, so it's just been amazing to see that, be a part of it, and and for medical marijuana to be legal in Oklahoma now, and not even just be legal, but to be considered the most liberal of all the laws in the whole country. Yeah, it's kind of blowing my mind. Yeah. Because it's kind of like they've taken, like, the Republicans' stance on business and applied it to Yes, and I always knew that that's why it would become legal in Oklahoma, is because of the money. I always thought if there's, you know... People that oppose to it, often more conservative folks, if there's anything they liked more than Jesus, it was money. And I don't think Jesus was opposed to marijuana anyway. So yeah, if, yeah. if a God created everything, then they created that too. <laughs> so how can so you say you can't have it, right? You, it goes uh, against those teachings. Do you have any, uh, you know, there was a new law that took place a couple days ago, the unity bill. Yes. Is that... Have, is there any like concerns as far as like you're you're just general manager? Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, um, know, so everyone just says like ah, oh, it was a great compromise between you know business. Well, there's some things about like the relicensing part that I don't like so much. There's going to be the option for doctors to do like sixty day ones, and if the price to get one doesn't change, that's not a good thing to me. To say people are going to still have to pay two hundred something dollars and they're only going to get the license for sixty days, that's not right. And that's something the Unity Bill did put in place. Yeah, I did and too. so I don't like that. 
Um, I think things like testing requirements are great. Um, I don't like that Unity Bill is forcing, from a city standpoint, from a local elected representative standpoint, I don't like that the cities are being forced by the state to do all the oversight, inspections, all that stuff yearly, which we don't normally have to do for most any business entities. And so the cities are having to now charge a fee, a permit fee and licensure, all this stuff. So now, not only are we so having to pay... a certificate of compliance or something? That, like yeah, that. you got to get it from the city first, and then mm-hmm. the state will give you... Well, the city, because the city's having to do all these things and do all this research, and so the cities are having to do fees and licensure fees. So now, as a business, we're having to pay the state and the city. Yeah. And we're basically paying the state so the state can tell the city to go ahead and do all the works. Us. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's frustrating. And, um, you know, it, it looks... From the from the from the street, it may look like dispensaries and all these businesses are just, you know, booming. Money's just pouring in; it's piling up. And I, I would just, in our experience, that's just not really the case. A lot of that money is going right back out. The cost, the overhead, is very high. Uh, nothing is tax deductible. Um, so, uh, and the product is not cheap. And as a store policy, we have required testing since the very beginning, since day one of us selling product. But the Unity Bill now requires it. We've Since we've always required it, it's not going to be a shock to us. Our prices have already reflected the fact that we won't buy product for anybody that doesn't have testing. I don't think that's the case for a lot of places, though. Sure. So now you're going to have to buy stuff that's tested. It's going to cost more. And I don't know that everybody has accounted for that. And, you know, when the tax bill is due at the end of the year, I think there's going to be a lot of shock for some people, too, um, about how much they're not able to deduct. So long none. That is a big question. Like, it not, is. Not just on the tax deduction, but, like, how much can, you know, these places survive? And is it a bubble? Is it not? You know, nobody knows. And that's kind of yeah. what I'm um, So, uh, you know, Good things about it. We think all, all that stuff is needed, but, um, you know, I'm just... That's just from the business side. I know yeah. there was one about, like, you know, the sharing of patients' information. That was my main... Yes, my absolutely. Main personally. Absolutely. Which I just saw was just stopped because a legislator said so. Right, and that's... Uh, I thought there was an injunction put in place, but it's just not... Just hold off I just think, because some guy yeah. says it. Uh, <laughs> you know? Like. That is uh, complicated. Well, this has all been complicated. Really. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, even our city legal staff, which has you know several people in it, yeah. um, has had a really difficult time getting clar- clarity on issues from the OMA, on what the unity bill means and doesn't mean, what we're supposed to do. Um, you know, it's all just new to everybody. You know, what do we charge for uh, yeah. these fees? Yeah. Like, what does inspection cost? I don't even know. We do know now, but that's uh, that's stuff that's all had to be figured out. And, um, you know, I think one thing to remember is, you know, this law was created by the people. And, you know, elected officials often, you know, they're elected and they feel like it's their job to make those decisions and laws. And, Why they were sent there. Right. You know, and so, you know, as soon as it passed, we all knew, well, these guys want to get their hands on it and change it and all that stuff. And, you know, people shouldn't be surprised that you know, the people up there that are being tasked with implementing this are people that have spent their whole career opposed to it. Yeah. And now they're being forced to accept it. 
you know, so, so until we mean? elect people that have been friendly to it, always been friendly to it, it's always going to be a question. So when the legislature comes back in January, yeah, what's going to be the next thing they pass to restrict it or change it or whatever? You know, and then they're going to have to sue and, you know, whatever. They're going to try yeah. and add churches in or whatever the thing is. Or, sure. or make it so that cannabis businesses can't advertise anymore. Like, that's one thing I've been yeah. hearing about. No billboards, yeah, no newspapers, no. no magazines, which is ridiculous. You don't yeah. do that for any other business. Yeah. You know, it's and all life. you free market conservative elected <laughs> officials out there wanting to regulate the free market. Sure, yeah. And tell people what they can do. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. And uh, so well, it's kind of like with your case, you know, like they wanted to kind of keep it down. Yeah. They wanted to you know, get your element out of here. Um, you have been going like three hours. Yeah. Now, yeah. So it's like it's a long enough. story. It, it is. But um, so many just, to ra- just to wrap it up, like, yeah. do, you, do you think like it would have been easier for you before the trial if like. I don't know how to say it, like media or news around here was actually not, not friendly to you, but actually covered it a little more, I guess, impartially. Do you, I mean, from your opinion. Um, definitely. From, I mean, you, I, I can think that yeah. and be like, oh, yeah, they totally spun it. They, or they hate right. this. That, you know? So I would say the transcript, Mormon transcript, did a, did a great job of covering mm-hmm. it. Um, I thought most of the, their stories were very accurate. Um, and they, they, I think... May have been like the second most covered topic. I mean, not like OU football, but sure, second most covered topic, maybe outside of OU football ever in the history of the paper. Wow! Like they did more articles and covered that story more than anything they've ever covered, and uh, just for so many reasons. But that, um, so I thought the transcript did a really good job. I felt others didn't, and like there were times when I like like specifically had like told. The reporter, like in email and in like on the audio, I'm not the owner of Friendly Market, <laughs> or this is there's no drugs involved, and they're yeah. like, there's no marijuana involved. Will you guys please print that there is no marijuana involved in this case? It's about pipes, and like still they wouldn't do it. It's like drug charges, drug yeah, yeah, it's sure. just like <sighs> just like technically you're right, I guess. Yeah, but. So, yeah, Thanks. but the local paper was great about it. And partly yeah. one of the, you know, I, I knew one of the reporters pretty well. Um, he's a musician at the Delhi, actually, so he covered it a bunch of times. And so, uh, but yeah, that, that was fine. And then the national papers that covered it, you know, they, that is how the nonprofit heard about it, was they read about it, I think, the Washington Post or New York Times. So, or from from those side, it linked into New York Norman yeah. Transcript or something, I don't know, yeah. but... That's how they heard about it. So, I mean, I think overall, you know, it was very helpful. The media was, I would say, much more positive to us um, than the, the prosecution really had no support. I mean, their support was the, their whole, their inner circle. That's it. I mean, yeah. Thank, thankfully, that wasn't enough. Yeah, thankfully. And they were shocked. They really? couldn't believe it. Well, how was the reaction in the courtroom? Were they just silent? or? I mean, oh, yeah, it- yeah. Yeah, they they couldn't believe it. They so thought, like I said, they thought it was a uh, their exact words are overwhelming evidence. It's overwhelming. You have to convict. You have to. So um, apparently not. Yeah. So <laughs> they were shocked. They were stunned at, at the whole thing. And now here we are. Um, you know, Oklahoma's, doing well. Looks Oklahoma's like. the talk of the country when it comes to cannabis. And, yeah. Uh, we have two stores. There are. We got the numbers the other day 
from a city staff, and there are 62 dispensaries in Norman, 89 growers, and 35 processors, which is the fourth most of every city in Oklahoma. Interestingly enough, even though Norman is considerably larger than Edmond in both population and land area, Edmond has 74 dispensaries, 120 growers, and 53 processors. So I guess that's where the adjustments uh, may be yeah. happening. Uh, <laughs> um, OKC has 400 dispensaries, 439 growers, and 233 processors. Tulsa has 227 dispensaries, 229 growers, and 101 processors. So after even, that, it drops off. Even the small little town I'm from, I'm guy that has a, or, uh, three, three dispensaries, which is just blows my mind. Yeah, Ardmore has 27, Shawnee has 25, Yukon has 11, <laughs> Duncan has 10. I mean, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, how things change so quickly. Yeah. 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 And I can't imagine are. what the police think. I'd love to hear their thoughts. But, uh, you know, I know several that Well, I've seen some. Us. You know, they had, we're talking about Edmond. There was one in Logan County where they pulled somebody over. They were transporting. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then... Oh, a couple of weeks go by, and it's their attorneys on the news, and they're going, oh, yeah, they had to drop the charges. Yeah, yeah. Why, why did they do that? Uh, well, they looked at the law. Wasn't yeah. on their side. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the district attorney in Cleveland County could have saved the taxpayers a whole lot of money and time yeah. if he would have just uh, done that himself. I mean, seriously, but like, I... <laughs> once they take a stand in a lot of cases, they can't go back. Yeah. You know, they just, they won't, and they can't. Um, and in our case, Greg Mashburn could not back out of it, I guess, once they made their Went stand. And, and again, they were confident, so True. they may have just been that arrogant. Yeah. That we're, we know for a fact this is... Slam dunk. Yeah. And well, so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing being here. There's still a lot of work to do, though, because there's still so many people that are in jail for marijuana-related charges, not just in Oklahoma, but throughout the country. And um, there's still inequity... And, you know, business ownership in this. Like I said, there's people, elected officials even, who have spent their entire life opposed to this, who are now getting in on the business side and making money off of it. And again, from my standpoint, it's not a booming business. We're doing good. We're doing better than we were without it. And I'm glad it's here. And I'm glad we're able to help people. And the stories and the people I see come in. It's a vast majority senior citizens and disabled and veterans. I mean, if there were medical qualifying conditions, 95% of the people that come in the store would absolutely qualify for whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, to see that is really rewarding every day. It's but a lot of people in the community. It is. It is. Like, I don't think people realize that, especially if you've never, yeah. done, you know, even touched that type of world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we have it's a doctor. A lot of yeah. We have a doctor visit here every other Friday and it's just about full every time. And it's older folks and veterans and, it's people that really need it. Oklahoma is one of the, the most unhealthy states in the country. We have one of the highest uninsured rates in the country. We have a high rate of mental illness. Um, so many factors. A high poverty rate. All On the top things. of all those yeah. lists, right? And yeah. so medical marijuana is something that is relatively low cost compared to that and high benefit. You know, And uh, a lot of people that were reluctant to try it when it was illegal are coming out now to... Really, people like, I haven't since I was in college, you know, in the 60s, or way back, or I never have, you know, 80, 90-year-old people coming in. And so seeing that is really wonderful. It's rewarding, but there's still a lot of work to do to uh, make things more equitable and make it right, correct the damage that 
you know, not even not just our local community we've done with prohibition over the years, but just nationwide. We've damaged generations of lives. We've ruined millions of lives over prohibition. We've got a still are. Yeah, still are. So we've got a long way to go. I'm excited that we're here though. But better days are ahead, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully so. I think it's a good place to end it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming on the podcast. If you ever actually want to be on and not talk about your case. Sure, anytime, <laughs> which, anytime. Which yeah, would yeah. probably be way more fun, I guess, in a sense. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, like So now I'm uh, in my fourth term on the city council. I'm the vice mayor of Norman now. I'm the longest serving member of the council. Not wow. ever, but currently. Wow. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, There's so, plenty of issues. Yeah. So... And things will continue to grow here, I think, and uh, will continue to be interesting in the cannabis world. And uh, so, yeah, anytime, any issue, I'm willing to talk about. So awesome. Let me know. Well, thank you, sir.